0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Confessions of a CES Director. Tonight, we're very, very pleased to have on the show Philip McLemore. Philip, how are you doing? Doing great. By way of introduction, and by the way, I stole this from somebody else's website, so my apologies. I think I'm apologizing to Mormon Matters because you've been on a number of different podcasts sharing different aspects of your spiritual journey, but Philip McLemore is a former CES instructor and institute director in the Southeast United States, mainly around the area of Florida, who then served after that for 21 years as an LDS chaplain in the Air Force, and then another eight years as a hospice chaplain. During this time, he underwent a dramatic spiritual transformation that was instigated and nurtured by, let me just tell you this right now, this is why I shouldn't steal things from other places because <laughs> this doesn't make any sense here. I think there is a problem with the way it was written. <laughs> anyway, what ended up happening was he, he suffered a serious uh, injury a physical injury, and through this process and trying to deal with uh, the pain resulting from this injury, he began pursuing other spiritual practices, Eastern spiritual practices, in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Did I pronounce that correctly, Philip? You did. Okay. Um, And now, Philip McLemore teaches meditation. He teaches it in person as well as online. It's typically Eastern in the form of its practice, but with the teaching centered primarily on the mystical and yogic path and the resources for it that abound within christianity and is it fair to say even within mormonism philip
1: well it really isn't because mormonism never really has developed a mystical tradition it's it's really focused on external practice so yeah. so you know, the revelation for me, once I began to understand the the nature of Jesus' mission and message and mediation, was that he was always presenting what I would call an inner path approach to union with God. Uh, and you can tell, first from the New Testament, tended to be against reliance on external practices that didn't transform the nature of the soul. So so that we don't find in Mormonism, um, you know, anytime we talk about being reborn or being born again in which is the inner transformation in Mormon Sunday school classes people get really uncomfortable they don't know what to do with the term because it just isn't experienced throughout the church so the revelation for me was that was that in Jesus was this deep deep inner mystical tradition that just rarely has been clearly understood so my foray in and through yoga, returned to Jesus, and I; uh, those two paths and practices became absolutely harmonious for me.
0: Well, when I had said, uh, within Christianity and Mormonism, once again, I was reading from this stolen blurb about you on a previous uh, podcast, not my podcast, somebody else's podcast. So once again, these are the dangers associated with cribbing material from others, because it's not always 100% accurate. I had started by asking for um, forgiveness and giving my apologies for taking this material. I think now the person who put it up needs to apologize to me. (laughs) But anyway, this is a great introduction, Philip, and I'm so excited to have you on the show tonight because you have spoken in various venues, even venues that I am familiar with on uh, Mormon stories, on Mormon Matters even more recently with Bill Reel on his fabulous Almost Awakened podcast. And primarily in those prior discussions that you've had, you focused on your inner journey, your mystical yogic practices. But what I want to talk with you about tonight is a number of experiences that you've had primarily before you entered into this mystical tradition because you have a fascinating story both as a CES director as well as an apologist for the LDS Church. You were at one time a Mormon apologist. Is that correct? That's correct. Well let's start at the beginning because once again my understanding is that these are experiences that you have had that you really have not gone into any detail on in any prior interview. Is that correct? That's correct. All right, well, there's a lot to cover. We only have three hours in which to cover it, and I know that sounds like a long time when I say it, but boy, does the time fly. So I'd like to get right into it with your conversion. Now, you joined the LDS Church when you were 19, but you were almost baptized when you were 13. Tell me about that.
1: Well, we were, <clears throat> we were living in Rancho Cordova, California, which is near Sacramento, and the apartments we were living in backed up against a... Um, junior high school and there was a big field there. And one day I noticed uh, some kids out there playing baseball and I walked over to see what was going on. And I didn't know this at the time, but it was being organized by two LDS missionaries, uh, white shirts and ties, obviously. And they told me I could join the team and I was grateful. So I started playing baseball there. And the next time I went, they then informed me that to continue playing baseball, I had to be a member of the church. And, you know, what church? And I'm Catholic uh, and so forth. And then they explained that there was uh, a meeting they were going to have where I could learn about the church and so forth. So, yeah, I said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to my mother. So I went home to my mother and was explaining to her I needed to go to this church meeting to continue playing baseball. I don't know how my mother knew, but she said, oh, no. She said, you're not going back there anymore. Those are the Mormons. They're trying to get their hands on you. Wait and- a second. Wait a second. Now, just because, I mean, this is, um, it's,
0: it's atrocious, really, but it's something that we've sort of come to understand from other people's stories, like John DeLynn, I think his very first episode uh, for Mormon Stories had to do with his experience as a missionary and the baseball baptisms or the kitty baptisms that he was encouraged to do when he was on his mission. But your mother, at this time, it clicked for her that these were Mormon missionaries who were trying to baptize
1: her 13-year-old son? Yes. and I had no idea how she knew that. She just um, put the fear in me. Uh, These are Mormons. They're out to get you. And, you know, that sounds pretty ominous. So I I just never went back. But I, I was at that point almost a baseball baptism. Oh, my gosh. Well, your mom was right, as it turned out. Uh, she absolutely was, and then uh, later, uh, this will come up later in the story, but uh, some years later, I, I um, got to know Elder Marion Hanks fairly well, and he and I had several meetings together, and Elder Hanks was the general authority who was sent to England, I forget the years, but there had been this a tremendous abuse with baseball baptisms in England, thousands and thousands of people baptized, And Elder Hanks was the one that was sent over to clean that up. Uh, I I remember him telling me about it. And, you know, there were thousands and thousands of thousands of people taken off the church rolls as he took the time to interview and find out what was going on and then remove people who, you know, really didn't want to be members of the church or or have their names on the records. And I do know that one volume history, which was quite groundbreaking, the story of the Latter-day Saints... Um, that became very controversial, and if you remember, it was pulled off the shelves, and and unsold copies were shredded. Uh, quite a good history, but it was one of those early histories that began to be more transparent. And one of the things that upset the brethren quite a bit was the story of baseball baptisms in in that book. So, was that in there? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That was one of the things that uh, upset. Uh, Elder Benson, I believed. And...
0: Well, I can understand why I would have said him. Uh, let me just say that uh, the story of the Latter-day Saints, as I recall, was a one-volume history, as you mentioned, about the LDS Church. It came out in the 1980s, and it was the result of the Leonard Arrington years as church historian. Is that right? Correct. So that hit the shelves, and then it went off the shelves pretty quickly after that. It
1: did, it was really a valuable valuable work.
0: Um,
1: So I hated to see that go. I still have my copy. By the way, can
0: I ask you how old you are? I apologize. I'm 60. I'll say it up front. Okay. So, hey, listen,
1: I was born in 1950. I turned 70 yesterday. Whoa, happy birthday. And I just have to tell you that, that, uh, you know, in the 1950s, you'd go to the movies, TV really wasn't out yet. And they would have these movie tone newsreels at the movies where world events and American stuff would be highlighted. And one of the things I remember as a child was the Radio Free Europe reports. Ah, And they would show these guys, you know, with their headphones on and the bunkers and, and uh, give reports on what Radio Free Europe was doing. So when I first heard a Radio Free Mormon episode and there was that music and testing one, two, three. I busted a gut. I mean, I was in my car, laughing, laughing. I I, I, re, I uh, rewound that. I have rewound. That's an old term. I put it back and probably listened to that music and that intro ten times uh, because it just linked me with with being a child in the actual radio radio free Europe. So
0: wow. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear uh, that. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. By the way, so you were 13. That was 1963. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so the year that JFK got assassinated, back on November 22nd. I remember that. I'm sure you do. Um, So you almost got baptized at age 13. You mentioned Elder Hanks and how he went to England. By the way, I have a dear friend who's about the same age as you, um, who was, he might be older than you, but I won't mention his name. Anyway, he was a missionary in England himself back, I think, during the 1960s, and he was there during the time period that Elder Hanks came over and had to set things in order. Wow. So it's an interesting thing, and I don't mean to take you off topic, but it is a situation where obviously it seems this is a practice that's going on on a mission level. In other words, on a local level, this is not something that's being directed specifically from the top, the leaders of the church, to do baseball baptisms. That's not what they have in mind. They have a missionary program with missionary lessons that are supposed to be taught. People are supposed to have at least a fundamental knowledge of the church before they're baptized. And back when I was a missionary, they also had to go to church at least once before they were baptized. So I'm saying this because, obviously, if Elder Hanks is sent from Salt Lake City to Straighten things out. It's not something that came from Salt Lake in the first place, but it was done on a local level. Now, England is not the only place that's had this problem. So, what I wanted to ask you is your thoughts about why it is that mission presidents or missionaries or both on a local level, without any direction from Salt Lake City, and in fact doing things different than the way Salt Lake City wants them to do it, are nevertheless engaging in these practices in order to increase their number of baptisms. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Well, I do, and I hope maybe in a minute or two here, we'll talk about the experience of my mission, which was not only similar, but quite worse. Mm. Um, I, you know, just judging from my mission president, his goal was to be the top baptizing mission in the world. Uh, being a successful mission president is often a stepping stone to becoming a general authority, and there just seem to be these these very ambitious, hard-driving men who, who aspire to be general authorities. And one of the ways to do that is to have a successful mission with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of baptisms. And they give in to what I would consider to be just unethical means to be able to promote themselves within the ranks of the church. That's my view. Yes,
0: and I know that from our previous conversations, we've had a number of conversations on the phone in preparation for this interview. And I want to go ahead and get it out right now, because I think a lot of your story is going to flesh out and illustrate this understanding and thesis that you've come to after a long time and a lot of experience with the church is that Mormonism as a system seems to tend to breed unethical people, or let me let me put it differently, people making unethical decisions and being deceptive about what they're doing.
1: That's true. And throughout my 50 years in the church, to my sadness, there has been this thread of dishonesty or un, what I would consider to be unethical behavior to either grow the church, promote the church, protect the church... Um, and it's disturbing. It's disturbing that, that, um, untruth, so to speak, is required to, to either, again, either grow or promote or defend the the church or the image of the church. It's just, it's always been there throughout my 50 years. Well, we're going to start with that
0: now. So going back to the outline, which you were kind enough to create for this, uh, this interview, uh, Go ahead and take us. Now, you were almost baptized at age 13. You end up getting baptized at 19. What happens in between?
1: Well, I, I grew up Catholic, went to an all-male all Catholic high school, graduated in 1968 at age 17, uh, started college, and I could tell I was over my head. I was not prepared for the world. I, I was somewhat aimless and immature and Uh, Didn't have much direction or purpose in life, but I did always, I was always interested in what people believed and how those beliefs impacted their day-to-day living. Mm -hmm. So I spent about two years investigating just about any church, religion, tent meaning that I could, uh, I had access to. And um, I mean, it would be hard for you to name a church or religion that I haven't experienced. Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh yeah, I took the whole six month uh, Jehovah's Witness study. Oh okay. Yep, they came to. The, as a matter of fact, I did that pretty right before uh, joining the LDS Church. Is somewhat concurrently, as a matter of fact, because I remember talking to the Jehovah's Witness teachers um, about my, uh, Mormon friends that I had and what they believed and so forth.
0: Well, what on earth uh, does Mormonism have over the Jehovah's Witnesses?
1: Well. um you know what? What always seemed like a true church to me would be a church that just wasn't on Sunday. Uh, that was detached from the the regular part of your life. And as I began to associate with young Latter Day Saints, I realized that that Mormonism was a part of the way they thought, the way they felt, what they desired, how they planned their lives, the decisions they made, um, and to some degree, I know Jehovah's Witnesses are similar to that, but Mormonism just seemed to to have a more hopeful, positive message. Uh, there was just always kind of a darkness about Jehovah's Witnesses that, that repelled me. And so anyway, this group of young adult friends that I had, um, I don't want to use the word tricked, but they... <laughs> called called me one day and said, oh, we got a bunch of cute girls over here that need a ride to an activity and our car broke down. Can you help? <laughs> so I dashed over and picked up the five girls and took them to the activity, which happened to be a multi-stake Mormon Day picnic. Hmm. So... I spent the whole day hanging out with these Mormon families. It was quite wonderful, super friendly, kind, interesting people. And then all of a sudden somebody said, Hey, the missionaries are going to be at Cindy's house. Let's go. What a coincidence. And I said, Missionaries? What what what? I said, missionaries are in Africa. They're not in California. And he said, Oh yeah, they're gonna be at that Cindy's house. Let's go. So we dashed over to Cindy's house and I didn't realize this till later, but they were there for one purpose and one person. And that was me. Did you tell your mother about this? No. (laughs) Well, I was 19 at the time. She could have waved you off the deck again, I think. So I had my first discussion that evening. Uh, The the main missionary there was a little bit older than most. He was 23. His name was Hiram Smith Johnson, the third. So, you know, I'm in trouble. (laughs) And, uh, anyway, I took the verse discussion and I, I don't know. I, I just, the claims were so bold. I just couldn't take it seriously. Um, you know, the Joseph Smith story and angels and gold plates and, and, uh, I was just pretty wild, so but I d- agreed to continue the discussions, so I took all six, uh, still had a lot of questions, I obviously didn't believe in it, so so uh, anyway, the missionary said to me, well, you know, we'd like to teach you the discussions again so you can understand them better, but we can't do it because you've already had them, do you have a friend that can join you? These were good missionaries. Yeah. So I invited an old girlfriend who was also Catholic, and I went through the missionary discussions a second time. She had no affinity for the teaching, so she dropped out, and here I was at the end of the second set and still not believing, so they said, well, let's do it again, but we need another friend, right? Mm -hmm. So I I invited my friend Bob Miner that I went to high school with, very, very intelligent person. So we started round three of the missionary discussions. This time they were held in a member's home. They had a huge living room. And for some reason, my set of discussions got to be quite a thing in the local stake. So a lot of people would show up. So there was about 25 adults. Um, and you know, here we are sitting in the room with all these adults. adults circled around us and we're going through the third set. Well, Bob asked really good questions. was very challenging to the missionaries. And when we were on lesson discussion five, which in those days was the plan of salvation, um, Bob started asking a series of questions that I could tell weren't designed for deeper understanding, but to trap the missionaries to get him to commit to certain positions so he could then pull the rug out from under him. Well, in those days, the, I don't know how many realize the, the discussions were presented on flannel boards that would be, you know, flannel board would be set up and then there'd be little figures with written statements and pictures of Jesus and Joseph Smith and different, you know, planets for the kingdoms. And as the discussion would go out, they would put these figures and they would stick on the flannel board. And by the end of the discussion, there'd be a, you know, a picture, a pictorial summary of what had been taught in that discussion. So, the whole discussion was up on the flannel board. Uh, Bob's asking these questions. I I could see the missionaries falling into his trap. So, I just said, stop. And I jumped down on the floor and I pulled all the figures off of the flannel board. And I looked back at Bob and I said, Bob, look, we gotta go through this again. So, I taught again, in summary form, the fifth discussion. I've been through it a couple of times. And I put the figures back up on the flannel board. And as I'm doing this, I didn't realize that all of the the LDS members that had come to be a part of that discussion saw what was happening. And they all kind of eased real back and became very, very still so I wouldn't be distracted from what, what I was doing. So Bob and I just finally got to a point where you know, it was just disagreement, pure disagreement. And I just started saying, Bob, why can't you see this? Why can't you see this? And then all of a sudden I caught myself and I went, oh, no. <laughs> I, and everybody in the room went, oh, yes. And I I just I put my hands over my head and I said, I, I said, actually, it's kind of funny. I said, damn, I think I believe this.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, they asked me to say the closing prayer that night, and that was it. I, I came to the conclusion I was a believer, and I was baptized soon after that. So you were 19. That's 1969? Yep. Well, 1970. 1970. 1970. Yeah. And then you ended up going on a mission, Correct. I did, uh, a year later. And um, I I just need to say this, Um, the church was a huge blessing for me. Uh, I mean, I was, I was immature, aimless, insecure, I lacked purpose, I lacked confidence, had no idea what to do with my life. And um, Mormonism connected me to God in a very concrete way. Um, it literally changed me into a purposeful, hardworking, confident, productive person. Um, The change was so dramatic that um, that to me was confirmation the church was true. And as a result of that, as a result of that empowerment, I just absolutely loved Mormonism, period. Um, And in the succeeding years, you know, in the succeeding 30 years, to be more specific, um, I, I just absolutely needed Mormonism to be true. Uh, my relationship with God, my personal identity, my sense of self was absolutely and completely enmeshed in Mormonism. And as a result of that, um, I, I just would and did defend it as if my life depended on it because it really felt like it did. Um So I I need to acknowledge what Mormonism did for me. And um, the the problem is it was a two-edged sword, that that initial strength of Mormonism, uh, which is true for many people. I mean, I've seen many people have that experience. But um, as you come to a knowledge of what I would call deeper Christianity, um, that. Concrete system that gives strength initially at earlier stages of spiritual growth. Actually, it does become a hindrance to inner transformation or inner rebirth. Anyway. Um,
0: well, I know what you're talking about because I experienced this as well. This identity as a Mormon, as a member of the church, that it wasn't just something I believed. It's something I was. And as you said, that's part of the strength of Mormonism. It's not just a a one-day-a-week religion. It's a seven-day, it's 24-7, as far as being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I said it that way for President Nelson in case he's listening. But no, and, and so what this ends up manifesting itself as is that when I would encounter someone, by the way, I was baptized when I was 18 in 1978, but So complete was my identity with the LDS faith that anytime I would encounter somebody either in writing or in person who was being critical of the LDS church, it immediately became translated to me as an
1: attack on me personally. Did you ever experience that? Absolutely. And you know this would be a something to explore at another time as 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 to how this actually happens, but somehow the church church culture church leadership substitutes itself for god um, a person 's relationship with the church literally becomes their relationship with God. it is indistinguishable, and so for the church to be threatened it 's as if God himself is threatened. And I, you know, I can remember people saying back in the '70s and '80s, you know, if this isn't true, nothing is true. And and so, when the church starts to go bad for people, God goes bad for people. You know, they, they lose their faith in the church, they lose God. And for me, that's idolatry. When when something or some person substitutes itself for God, uh, it actually separates a person from from an intimate, direct relationship with God. And I think this phenomena that we are seeing today, which is really a modern phenomena, that that people of all ages now are are leaving the church, and f- from my experience, it seems like about half of the people leaving the church now also leave with a lack of faith in God and uh, become agnostic or or identify themselves as atheist, and in my conversations with many, many of these folks, and they don't realize this, um, it's clear that their loss of faith in the church was also a loss of faith in God because the two were indistinguishable. Yes, I
0: encounter that over and over again when I'm listening to general conference or uh, listening to other speakers reading church materials. And one classic example that I remember of this, this conflation of church leadership with God. Um, The church is God. The church leaders actually are God. If you pay attention, the same terms get used interchangeably. And this classic example was a number of years ago in the Enzyme magazine when they were having an article at the time about, you know, your doubts and what should you do if you have doubts about the church and this article stated that there was one answer by the way you'll want to write this down Philip okay there's one answer <laughs> that will resolve all of your doubts all of your problems all of your issues with the church and that answer is this are you ready oh yeah pen in okay. hand okay The answer is this it actually ends up being a question but the answer is this do you trust God that was the answer because if you trust God then you don't have to worry about your doubts your questions your issues because you're trusting God overrides it but what was not stated explicitly but is obviously the message is that they have substituted the church and its leaders for God because really, not, what they're asking is not "Do you trust God?" What they're asking right. is, "Do you trust right. the LDS Church and
1: its leaders?" Right. No, I, I agree, and uh, sadly now, because of you know the information that's available and and a more accurate way of seeing what's happened in the church throughout its history, people are leaving and and they're losing their faith. I mean, they literally lose hope in in. Life and certainly any eternal life. Now that's not true of all. Some people leave and feel tremendously liberated, but uh, so many I talk to really do care about um, spiritual life, having faith in the higher reality or God, and and uh, they they feel damaged as a result of their experience in the church, and and uh, that damage uh, disrupts their relationship with God. So. Well, sure. Fool me once, Shame on you. Oh, yeah. So anyway, um, I was called on a mission in 1971 uh, and uh, to Brazil. It was the Brazil Central Mission at that time. And providentially, <clears throat> I was sent eight to ten hours bus ride out to the interior of Brazil and was in a little dinky two missionary town where I was literally detached from everything going on in the rest of the mission. So, and I had two really good companions and it was a glorious 6 months. I mean, we taught the gospel, baptized um
2: My baseball?
1: No baseball. I listen. <laughs> I, I I you know, I loved the gospel. I believed in what it could do in people's lives and I taught it that way. There was no pressure. You know, I honored people's doubts or concerns or differences of opinion. And um, we, you know, we just taught and loved people and enjoyed doing it. And in my mission, there were no time limits. We were up at six. We taught till nine and ten at night. We didn't get to bed till 11, 1130. Uh, We we literally worked day and night. And uh, we just absolutely loved it. It sounds idyllic. It was idyllic because we were separated and didn't know what was going on elsewhere. Well, at about the six month mark, now in my mission, most, I don't know how they operate now, but in those days, you had a mission president, you had the two assistants to the president, then you would have zone leaders and then you would have district leaders. In my mission between the assistants and the zone leaders were a, a, a new position called region leaders. the mission was divided into four regions, and these region leaders were big guys. I mean they were the football player, tough uh, pardon the expression kick ass kind of guys and these regions would compete with each other and I learned later that the mission president didn't even make the transfers and decide where missionaries went the the uh, region leaders would get together and they would trade missionaries back and forth like baseball cards. And uh, anyway, the region leader for the interior part of the mission, that was what was called the interior region, decided to do the eight to 10 hour drive out to uh, visit us because we'd been out there isolated for six months. So he came out to visit us and for whatever reason, took a liking to me. And so when he got back to the mission home, he traded somebody for me and I became his companion. And I will never forget the first night, um, well, the first day, we didn't go out and do any proselyting. We didn't do any kind of work with missionaries. Uh, We hung out at girls' houses. Um, He tried to go into a movie theater in the afternoon. I wouldn't go with him. He got a little angry at me. we went back to the apartment. He had a big rack of novels. He laid on his bed the whole day reading novels. I read and memorized scriptures. And then about 10 o'clock at night, he said to me, let's go. I said, what do you mean, let's go, it's bedtime. He said, no, this is when our work begins. So we went out, got in the car, and we drove to probably four or five in the morning visiting every zone leader. In the interior region. Now he had a key to every apartment. So we would pull up, he would open the door, flip on the light, go to the zone leader and he'd want a daily report. How many? He's waking them up. They're asleep. Waking them up. They're asleep. He wakes them up. And I'm in, I'm just, I'm like, what is going on here? And um, he Woke up the zone leader. He said, how many first discussions in your zone today? It was meager. He didn't like the answer. I I, I am not exaggerating. He put his hands on the shirt of this missionary, pulled him out of the bed, slammed him against the door jamb, yelled at him. This is unacceptable. You are a failure. You get dressed. This is not acceptable. You get dressed. You and your companion get your butts out on the street. You personally teach a first discussion before you go back to bed. He says, well, gosh, it's, you know, it's 11 o'clock or depending on the zone, It's two in the morning. He said, you find an all night gas station, an all night store, a night watchman, but you don't go back to bed till you teach a first discussion. And you make sure when I come back tomorrow night, that in your zone, there are at least, you know, whatever the number of first discussions was. So, um, In our mission, the rule was, if people would not be baptized within 10 days, you dropped them. So you would teach a first discussion, commit to baptism within 10 days. If they didn't agree, you dropped them and went on to somebody else. So um, we get in the car. I'm shaking. I said, what is going on here? This is not missionary work. He said, you don't understand Elder McLemore. These are 19 year old kids. They have to be motivated and we're going to meet our goals. And off we went into the night and we went to every zone leader's house. And if they didn't have the numbers he wanted, there were either verbal and or a physical threat. Um, I, 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 I just couldn't believe it now. Again, I mentioned the president wanted to be the top baptizing mission, and we were. I mean, out of 198 missionaries, we were having 5,200 baptisms a year, if you can imagine.
0: Well, it's hard to imagine because I went to Japan on my mission. Now, <coughs> Japan is not Brazil, but it's also not Germany. So it's somewhere in between, right? At least when I went on my mission, <laughs> but I had like 30 some odd baptisms in my mission, but nowhere near the number of baptisms you had. But back in the States, when I joined the church in 78 and 79, before I went on my mission, everybody was talking about brazil south america in general south of the border but brazil specifically and how the gospel was exploding there and how people were lining up to be baptized and the holy ghost was moving forward with the missionary work in spades a lot of it got tied in with the um uh the blood of the lamanites of course because the lamanites are ready to receive the gospel in the last days and now the missionaries are baptizing them so it's fascinating to me to compare my romanticized idea of what was going on with missionary work in Brazil to produce these numbers versus your account of what was really going on.
1: Yeah. So as I got to, as I got into being his companion, as I got to know the other region leaders, as I got to know, you know, the system that was, that was in place to ensure that we would have thousands and thousands of baptisms, you know, I witnessed false reporting by missionaries because they didn't want to be drug out in the middle of the night, Right. So they're yeah, just, just, just make up a number. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And um, then I began to notice, uh, you know, the, the, what I would call the either forced or concocted baptism. So missionaries would go into the very poorest areas of town. Now, here are, these, here are these big, impressive Americans, you know, visiting these very poor people in humble conditions. And, you know, they would either be baptized because they're going to be the friends of these these Americans, right? who might benefit them in some way or they were just simply told, okay, we're your baptismal uh, ceremony is, is going to be you know, this time day at this church, uh, we're going to come and get you and uh, you'll be baptized and then you'll be members of the church and they would just strong arm people. I mean, these these, these folks just didn't have the, you know, some, some did, but many just didn't have the courage to say no. And what they began to learn was if you just went with the missionaries and got baptized, they would leave you alone. They never come back, right? They'd never come back? No, they never didn't come they back. Say, Why go back? where are you? Why
0: didn't you go to church?
1: Yeah, no, you you don't go back. And by the way, people didn't have to go to church to be baptized. Uh-huh. People didn't have to live the word of wisdom to be baptized. They didn't have to pay tithing to be baptized because there wasn't enough time in 10 days, right? Mm-hmm. So um i'm i'm just in a state of shock i mean you know all the stories i mean uh we had the missionary who was the most admired in our mission he was called the kingdom builder and he always had 50 60 baptisms a month and i spent a day with him to to see how he did it well he would go to a store buy a soccer ball find a bunch of kids in the field um tell them that if you come over to the church here and watch a movie which was the film strip christ in america um, and listen to us talk a little bit, you can have this soccer ball. Well, heck, 10, 20, 15 kids would show up and and uh, they'd watch Christ in America and he'd baptize them on the spot, give them the soccer ball and then you know go out and eat dinner and enjoy the rest of the day. Um, so this kind of stuff just... Philip, you know, Philip, I've got to ask you, what is going through your mind when I, you're witnessing all this? I'm completely flabbergasted and shocked. I... And I'm, I've only been a member of the church for a year, right? Yeah. I'm loving, you know, I'm believing Jesus Christ and love and right integrity and honesty and so forth. Um, I'm just absolutely in a state of shock. Um, I, you know, missionaries are supposed to write letters to the mission president once a week. And in theory, the president's supposed to read them to know what's going on with the missionaries. And if somebody needs to be ministered to is having problems, he becomes aware of it and can reach out to him. So isn't that part of the system? Sure. We wrote our
0: mission letters to the mission president every week. Absolutely. Okay.
1: So I popped the trunk on the region leaders car one afternoon and the trunk is completely filled with letters, envelopes and letters. And I said, what the heck is this? He says, oh, these are the letters to the president from the last, whatever it was, six, eight months. I said, well, why aren't they delivered? He said, Oh, he doesn't read them. I sat down that night, pulled armfuls of those letters out of the trunk of the car, and started reading them. And I was absolutely heartbroken. There were there were missionaries who who didn't have the nerve to force people to be baptized or who would not do unethical things, but their numbers were very modest, and so they were feeling like failures because everybody else is baptizing, you know, ten, twenty, thirty a week. And um, I mean, there were there were obviously missionaries with deep emotional problems and inner conflicts and distress. And I mean, there was a missionary. He was like thirty two years old. He had never married. He financed his own mission to serve the Lord at that age, and he's just pouring his heart out to the president. Please help me. I don't know why I'm such a failure. And um, I, I, I just, I, literally heartbroken is all I, I can say. And the fact that the president wouldn't read these, wouldn't know what was going on, and wouldn't be in a position to respond to this, I, I, I just, uh, I couldn't understand. Well, a couple of thoughts about that, Philip. I can understand why a
0: region leader who is going around in the middle of the night and waking up his zone leaders, and shaking them down, and kicking them out, and making them teach a first discussion before they go back to bed, wouldn't necessarily want that communicated to the mission president. So that's the first thing I think of, right? That they're protecting themselves. But then the second thing I think of is, the mission president knows he's supposed to be getting letters every week from his missionaries. He also knows he's not getting them. So where was the supervision?
1: Well, it wasn't. And I there was a time when I thought, the guys are hiding this from the president. The president can't be this unscrupulous. And so there were there was a time period when I just took the position that the president doesn't know, and if he did know, he wouldn't condone this. Um, well, in any case, we would when we would have our region conferences, if not mission conferences, um, we would have what was called a goals and challenges session where the president would. Would uh, take down the numbers from the different districts and zones on the number of baptisms they planned the next month, and literally he had a bag of candy, and people were on their chairs. They were jumping up, they were screaming and yelling out these really high numbers. So he'd go zone, but you know he'd go district by district and. And uh, how many baptisms are you going to have this month? And, you know, the district leader would stand up and yell out his number. And and if he liked the number, he'd throw candy. If he didn't like the number, he'd chide in some way. And and uh, so, you know, it, it, it just went that way, these goals and challenges sessions. Well, after a all-mission conference where every missionary was there and every region reported, after this conference was over, uh, all the, the the assistants and the two region leaders, we went to a bathhouse at midnight, and we were sitting in a hot tub, um, going through the uh, what, you, what we call those the review, you know, where you would um, critique the conference, what you liked and what you didn't like. So we're thumbing through these things, reading what the missionaries had to say, and this one missionary had written. <clears throat> he wrote. Uh, I felt like I was in the locker room of the Green Bay Packers at halftime instead of being in a room of the Lord's anointed. Mm. When that was read, everyone but me broke out into laughter. And one of them said, you can sure tell who the Greenies are. Mm. Well, at that moment, I was sitting next to Elder Kimball, who was the assistant, a person I really liked. And I turned to Elder Kimball and I said, I said, what are we doing? This is outrageous. And he looked at me and he said, I know it's absolutely horrible. And then he said, but my goal was to be the assistant to the president, and this is what it takes. And um, anyway,
0: so. Phil, Phil, I don't mean to break in. I just want to make an observation. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're describing about how you felt about the um oh you call the region leaders uh vis-a-vis the mission president and how you initially thought well it must be the region leaders who are keeping this from the mission president he's in the dark and it just strikes me that this is a very common thing that i used to do and i think a lot of members do is that pretty much we try and ignore any unethical or problematic dealings within the church but when we actually encounter them and we are unable to ignore them, it's very common for us to try and compartmentalize those problems to the lowest level in the church in an effort, apparently, to keep the taint from spreading upward to higher leaders in the church. Oh, I agree.
1: Um. What changed here was, and what made it crystal clear to me, apparently there were a number of missionaries who were so shocked by what was going on. They had written, and and you know, you're, we were told in the mission home, first of all, Elder Packer, Elder Boyd Packer, who I absolutely adored, told us face to face in the mission home that our mission presidents were absolutely called by inspiration, called by revelation, called by God, and that we were to obey them without question and that we were to never go around them ever well apparently some of the missionaries in our mission were so shocked they started writing to their parents and describing what was going on so elder marvin ashton the quorum of the 12 was assigned to come down to our mission and see what the heck was going on so the mission president had, I think, uh, more than six or eight weeks notice that Elder Ashton was coming. And so the month before he arrived, it, there was this massive transformation in the mission. He instituted a program. I can't remember the acronym anymore, but it was a program of scripture reading, testimony bearing, um, I, I forget all the elements to it, but it was the kind of thing you would expect to go on a mission that would build the faith of the missionaries. Right. Right. So that went on for a whole month and meticulous records were kept of, of uh, what the missionaries had done in this program. So when elder Ashton came, the whole focus of the mission conference and it was an entire, it was the whole mission co- that was present Uh, was a report on this program and how it had blessed the missionaries and increased their testimonies and faith and so on and so forth. And it was an impressive, impressive presentation. There was nothing about how we proselyted the number of baptisms, um, nothing. And so I thought, Holy cow, Elder Ashton. I was so grateful when when I heard he was coming, I thought an apostle Lord's coming. He's going to see what's going on here and he's going to, ring this mission out. He's going to straighten it up. I really believe that's what was going to happen. So, um, elder Ashton was fabulous. He gave wonderful presentations. He bore a very stirring testimony. I mean, it, it, I, I mean, I wrote pages in my journal about it and, um, Anyway, toward the end of the day, when we would usually have goals and challenges session, I said, well, this will do it. This will do it. When he sees <laughs> when he sees the screaming and the yelling and the candy throwing, um, he, he's going to realize what's going on here, right? Right. So toward the end of the day, um, when we would normally have goals and challenges, uh, the mission president had scheduled a number of private interviews with particular missionaries that had particular problems. Uh, so Elder… Ashton was put in a private room visiting these these individual missionaries. And then it was whispered, we're going to have goals and challenges just with the leaders in room X, you know, which was on the other side of the building. So the goals and challenges was a hush-hush event, virtually whispered, in secret. Uh, We gave all our numbers. There were no questions, challenges. Uh, They just wanted the numbers. And then we all went. And then there was a closing testimony meeting, and everybody went home. Uh, Elder Ashton saw nothing and discerned nothing. And the next month, this um, ESOMP, what it was called, ESOMP program, uh, completely disappeared, and we were back to normal. It was at that moment that I realized that uh, the president had deceived Elder Ashton, that Elder Ashton had been deceived, and that not only was the president in the know, the president was the orchestrator of this whole madness. Um, now, uh, I was rewarded by the region leader uh, when he, he was on his way home, and um, he was he had done his two years. And so he rewarded me by making me a district leader, putting me in a nice area. And suddenly I'm now under the thumb of the zone leader and the, new, and the region leader. <laughs> Did you get any midnight visits? <laughs> Let me tell you something. I knew the drill. <laughs> and I knew where the region leader lived and how long it took to drive and when they would normally leave. And I'm not exaggerating. At this point in time... Um, I would take my companion, we would go out, there was a little garden in the area where where we lived, and we would sleep in the garden until the the region leader, or the zone leader, sometimes the zone leaders would make visits. Um, well, I'm sorry, the region leader wouldn't come to me as a district leader. The zone leader would come because he had to know how many first discussions so he could report to the region leader when he got visited. Yes, leader. exactly. <laughs> so... In any case, we would sleep in the garden because I was not going to be manhandled. I was not going to be yelled at. I was not going to have anybody put their hands on me. And to avoid that kind of uh, conflict and consequence, we slept in the garden. The zone leader would come. Yeah, the zone leader would come. He'd come into the apartment. He'd see we weren't there. He assumed, he assumed we were out, you know, teaching people that worked in the middle of the night and was just so impressed that we worked so long and so hard. <laughs> and then once he was gone, we would get up and go get in our bed. Um, so
2: anyway. Now, Phil,
0: Phil, breaking in here. Right now, we have got five minutes left on the first of our three hours. And I want to conclude with your mission experiences, but I want to reserve an hour for your experiences as an institute director and teacher, and then another hour uh, for your experiences as a Mormon apologist. So, but I do want you to talk before we leave this area. I do want you to talk about the fact that, you know, Brazil was an area that was very, very problematic for the church at the time because there was a lot of. Negro blood and I'm putting that in air quotes here. That's the terminology that was used at the time. This is before the priesthood ban and temple ban was lifted. That wouldn't be until 1978. And there was a lot of intermarrying among the people in Brazil and therefore a lot of intermarrying with members of the church. And this created a great difficulty for the church as to who could get the priesthood and who could not. And, who could go to the temple, which they ultimately built and dedicated there at the end of 1978 in Sao Paulo, I believe. Can you tell the audience what it was that as missionaries you had to do in order to make sure that the right kind of people were joining the church?
1: Yeah, so we we were commissioned to not... Uh, teach or baptize people with uh, Negro lineage. And and we called this um, aspect of our mission, the lineage. And we even had a special lesson that the mission president had made up called a lineage lesson. And so when we would go into a person's home, if they weren't uh, German or Japanese, you know, if they weren't specifically uh, non-Negroid, you know, ethnic background, you know, we would teach them without any issue. Um, if there was any question, if, if people hadn't, I'm using the word Negro because that's just the term we used at the time. Um, If they had any features, we would then take a moment to talk about their family, ask where their ancestors came from. We would ask to look at family pictures and we would go through their family albums, looking for evidence that there was, uh, you know, evidence of the Negro race. And if we saw or suspected any of that, we would then give them what we called the lineage lesson, which, as I remember, was a lesson on the Ten Commandments. Many times they would ask to reschedule, want us to come back, and we would actually reschedule but not return and just go on our merry way. So there was an intentional effort to, to not teach or not, and certainly not baptize folks of the lineage. Now, this tormented me and one of the reasons it tormented me was some of the nicest best christ-like people we ran across (laughs) were people of the lineage and the fact that we couldn't teach and baptize these folks um, uh, was a personal torment to me so uh, i had a fascinating experience it was one of the highlights of my mission i had a passport problem And I got stuck in the mission home all day while it was being sorted out. This was in 1972. And Elder Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, an apostle who was traveling, uh, missed a flight. He couldn't get his uh, return flight until the next day. So he was stuck in the mission home all day. And why he was left alone, I think he wanted to be left alone. He had business to do. Even the president wasn't messing with him. So here he and I are sitting a room apart And I'm alone and he's alone. And I'm thinking, gosh, here's an apostle. I have questions. I'm going for it. And so I went down and, you know, tapped on the door and he invited me in and I just asked him if I could ask him some questions. He was very, very gracious. And we sat down and the very first question I asked him was elder Hinckley. Look, look, this is what we do. Um, this whole lineage business and what, why is it that they're banned from the priesthood and uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I was so stunned. I, I, I thought I would get some doctrinal treatise on, you know, the preexistence and, you know, all the stuff that was described in the books of the day, the Negro and the priesthood and Mormonism, and the Negro. And, you know, i had studied all those books and tried to make it right, but it just didn't, feel right, didn't smell right. And so rather than defend it as either a doctrine, he approached it as a policy. He was not sympathetic to it. And he said, look, I my personal opinion, why he would share this with a dumb young missionary, I'm not quite sure, but he shared his honest opinion, which was, um, I, I think the church is not strong enough to assimilate black culture now there was an assumption here that there was something wrong with black culture and he said we're afraid that that elements of black culture will negatively impact or influence the culture of the church he said it's my view that when the church becomes strong enough where where we can maintain the dominant church culture within uh, negro culture that then the lord will change this and we'll be able to baptize them i it, you know it was a whole lot better than what I had been taught, and it was there was a little hopefulness in that, so that you know I just accepted that um, that was his point of view. We went on to other things he was very uh kind and genuine and affirming and um, it was quite a wonderful time that I spent with him.
0: Can I just make one comment on that, Philip yeah. Yes, while Elder Hinckley is telling you this, and this would have been in 1971, 72, or 73 when you're on your mission, right? Yes, 72. He already knows that there has been a lot of dispute among the apostles about lifting the priesthood ban, and that just a few years before, in 1969, Hubie Brown almost, almost got the ban lifted, but it was um uh overridden at the last minute i think by harold b lee who got wind of it and came back into town and put the kibosh on the whole enterprise but this whole idea that everything is going on within the quorum of the 12 and he knows about all this but of course he's not going to tell you about all this he's going to frame it in terms of not this is what the lord wants so i want to give him credit for that but He's basically going to blame it on the membership of the church in a sense that the membership of the church are too prejudiced or they're not strong enough in order to assimilate the black culture or to deal with the idea of blacks having the priesthood. Therefore, it's not the responsibility of the leaders of the church. It's those darn members.
1: Oh yeah. And, um, I, I'm aware of all that certainly as a young missionary, I was not. And I, at that point I needed something to give me hope. Um, and that, that certainly did it at the time. So yeah, you're absolutely correct as far as the history is concerned. Well, let's uh, go,
0: if we can, if you're ready to go in, going into your experience as a CES director in Florida. Um,
1: well, certainly I, I, is it okay if I, if I just uh, summarize two other elements to my mission? Sure thing. Um, just real quick. I found out years later that about 70% of the missionaries, the returned missionaries in my mission, who were under the first mission president, um, uh, became inactive, if not traumatized, and did not go back to church. Um, Actually, when I was working in a hospice years later, I was talking with a young nurse whose father had been in my mission. And she told me that when he came home from his mission, he never talked about it, never would talk about it, never went back to church and if you talked about church or talked about mission, he would get very depressed and angry um, i so there was an ongoing impact here to the to the faith and really the, the psychological health of many of those missionaries. I was also left with the 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 quandary, the quandary of how me Right? A one-year immature member who had very little knowledge of scriptures and spiritual living could assess um, that this was wrong. Right, This is being directed by prophets and apostles, um, but yet this system was flawed, unhealthy, and destructive. And I was also left with the, the reality that an apostle can be deceived, blatantly deceived. So those were things that kind of sunk down within me. I did come to the conclusion to that my mission was an aberration, and this probably went on, didn't go on anywhere else. Over the years, though, I've, I've – and not every mission is like that. I mean, you know, some people go on missions and they have great experiences and there's not this kind of craziness. I hope most are that way. Um, but my son, who went to Argentina with really good mission presidents who didn't do these sorts of things – he still came home depressed and traumatized just because of the culture among the missionaries and the competition among the missionaries and the baptizing of people that shouldn't, that didn't understand what was going on. Um, so in spite of my warnings to my son, um, he, he came home discouraged and depressed, angry, uh, for me, for some reason, I was able to set it to the side and, and move on without, uh, I had the questions in my mind, but I was able to move on without the, the lasting impact that it had on many others. Hmm. Um, okay. So when I got uh, home from my mission, I went to school at the university of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. And I was immediately selected as the, um, uh, LDS leader on the campus, and we had a fair number of of LDS students there, so I ran our program, our missionary efforts, our uh, invitations to get people to come to institute classes, and uh, it, it was a good time. It was a fun time. I got to be good friends with the CES director in the South in those days. We had CES directors, and they would teach institute classes, and then they would supervise the seminary program over large geographical areas and so I became the right hand man for this CES director and and I absolutely loved him he he taught me a number of wonderful things he taught me how to read the scriptures with faith and power and the the power of just reading the scriptures without commentary Um, so I I had a heart for him Um, however he developed a lesson one day for our institute class on Proofs for the Book of Mormon, and he focused a lot on on what was popular in that day, you know archaeological proofs and and uh, so forth all of it 's been proved to be insubstantial, but um, the lesson went over so well he began to expand it and to expand it and to expand it and then suddenly he was being invited to give this presentation on proofs of the Book of Mormon. Um, in wards and stakes and then it was he he was a good presenter (laughs) and and then pretty soon he's being invited outside of his area and then outside the state and then all over the united states and then in foreign countries and uh, he wrote a book and uh, and i knew because i was with him and i even helped him develop some parts of this But I knew it was substantially distorted, exaggerated, and, 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 you know, untrue. And it began to bother me. And so I sat down with him in his home one day and I said, look, um, I I believe in the Book of Mormon, but I don't think this is the way to go about it. I, I, you know, you know that much of what you're teaching just isn't accurate and it's distorted and it's exaggerated. I I just don't think this is the way to do it. I think we need to build people's faith on what's true. And he said, "Oh, Phil, he said, I I understand what you're saying, but these presentations create faith. They really do. They really create faith." And and I thought, "Well, I don't know. I think faith has to be, you know, established in what's true." And he said, "Oh, I've seen the effect on people." And then he said <laughs> he said, "I'm going to tell you something else." He says, you only get one chance for glory in this life, brother, and I'm taking it. And so to have his way paid to travel around the country and even around the world um, was just too much for him. And uh, that's what he did. Can you just give us an
0: example of one of the things that um, this CES director, who's right now is sort of remaining nameless because I understand he's still No, he's
1: actually passed away. Oh, okay.
0: This isn't the person that we've agreed was going to be anonymous. This is someone else. Yes. Okay. Um, What was an example of something that he would teach that was not strictly true?
1: Oh, it was just typical, you know, pictures of stuff in among the Mayans or in Central America. Um, uh, You know, it it was stuff that would be like in Hugh Nibley's since Kimura. It was stuff like uh, on this stone, there was an engraving, uh, and uh, the name was Nephi, you know. Well, that that must be Nephi, right? It's just so close. It has to be Nephi, you know. They, they, these were people who knew Nephi. Mm. And, and, and Tree of Life stuff, you know. Oh, They're, Stilify from Isabella. Yes. So it's, it's just that stuff that was um, used to try to prove the ancient origin of the Book of Mormon or the historical nature of the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, we knew from our studies that this stuff was exaggerated and distorted, and and uh, he, he just couldn't couldn't help himself. Oh, and by the way, the Tree of Life, uh, Tree
0: of Life, <laughs> once again, air quotes, uh, Stone, the uh, Stella 5, Stelly 5 from Izapa, uh, which was long promoted as being um, a portrayal of Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life, has since been. Um, completely debunked by none other than the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. I think it was still Farms at the time that they published an article in their their journal debunking that as a proof of the Book of Mormon. So you were definitely right on.
1: Oh yeah, and and so that again, that's just one of the things that kind of settles into your soul, right? I, I never agreed with that, but I loved him so much. I I just had to honor. What I felt he had contributed to me and to others in his in his teaching, and um, you know, just kind of pressed on. Uh, as it turned out, he he. Um, um, I, I don't. I don't know whether to share my experience with Elder Benson or not. Here, um, I
0: tell you what. Can we maybe skip that for now? We've talked sure, about that sure, and just we'll see how time. Yeah, goes that's and fine. And come back to it. if we do have time.
1: He ended up, um, I, my work was so uh, substantive, and there was a point in time where um, the CES director there uh, had, uh, his father was dying of cancer in Arizona, and so he needed me to take over his job for two months while he went to Arizona for the, the demise and death of his dad. Mm. So I ran his program, and I taught the institute classes all over Central Florida, Um, the classes on the campus there. I didn't do any of the seminary work, and the reports were so positive that what happened was this filtered up to the area CES director who was over the whole southern states and the Caribbean. And... I didn't know this at the time, but um, at the University of Florida, up the road from Tampa, there there, there was an institute building and a full-time institute director, and then the, the area director also had his office there. They were looking for a graduate student to teach the evening classes at the University of Florida, and so when they caught wind of this, they thought I might be a good candidate for that. So... Uh, In any case, he came down, the area uh, CES coordinator came down to interview me. He didn't really let me know what he was up to, but um, he came down and watched me teach a class. And then later, um, in kind of a funny way, encouraged me to go to graduate school at the University of Florida. And uh, he said, even though I was dumb and ugly and wasn't related to anybody important that he might give me a chance to teach a few institute classes there while I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really use those words, though, did he? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, he did? Yeah, oh, yeah, it was his nature. He um, At that point, I decided that I loved the CES and I loved teaching so much that I wanted to be a seminary uh, institute teacher, and I had actually applied to BYU to go to school. And... Was uh, planning on going through the seminary program, and uh, so you know, in those days, you would—it was a BYU program—and you would go through seminary classes, and then you would student teach and be observed. And so he knew what my plan was to was to go through that, and um, in, in a humorous way. And he was a big man. He he pushed me against the car one morning. And uh, he said, look, he said, "Uh, you're not very bright. You're not very good looking. uh, You're not related to anybody important. But he said, look, if you can find a way to get admitted to the University of Florida graduate school, he said, I'll let you teach a few Institute classes. And, you know, if you're any good, which I doubt um, you, you know, I might uh, be able to help you with your desire to be a full-time CES person. well, when that was over, and I we got in the I got in the car with the the local director. He said to me, uh, "Do you realize how significant that is?" And I said, "No." He says, "Don't you go to BYU? You go to the University of Florida, because if he says you're in, buddy, you're in." I mean, he was a person that had influence within the church educational system. Hmm. So it was it's a miraculous story, but because the the deadline for application had already passed, but uh, I ended up getting in the University of Florida graduate school. Um, he did take me under his wing in a very kind way. Um, he became kind of a surrogate father for me. He was uh, my boss and he was also the state president. So he had these three major areas of influence over me. And And I taught the evening classes at the University of Florida uh, while I was going to graduate school there. Um What happened, uh, I I was obviously successful enough that he decided to hire me directly. I was a direct hire. So I didn't have to go through the BYU program, do the supervised student teaching. Um, He just, um, as he was making personnel changes, uh, a lot of the guys that taught that were the directors in the southern states in those years really didn't want to be there they were utah people they wanted to live in utah they wanted to teach in utah Uh, they would go out there and do their time however many years it was and then they would want to go back as soon as possible so there was always a flow of guys back and so uh, he made the case to the central office that uh, when they sent this guy uh, who was in birmingham at the time alabama uh, that instead of the church having to pay to move somebody out, he would just put me in that, in his position as a direct hire and the central office uh, agreed to it saved church, quite a bit of money, not to have to move somebody. But instead of putting me in Birmingham, he put me at Auburn university in, in Auburn, Alabama to found um, the Institute program there. they had had a called teacher for some time, but they wanted to, uh, full-time person there and they wanted to build that program. So anyway when I graduated I was a direct hire uh, and he put me there at uh, Auburn University to be the Institute director. I did again I supervised seminary throughout the state but um, was really the founding director of what was intended to be a you know a full-time program. Did you have any special insights
0: of the workings of the church behind the scenes that you could share with us?
1: in that regard um, well um, several things happened um, we were getting ready they they obviously we had been teaching the classes up on the campus in the student Union and so um, they had asked me to pick out a piece of property and a, a house they didn't want to build a you know there wasn't enough Activity there to build a for the church to build a regular institute building. They wanted to see if the program would grow. So their idea was to purchase a home uh, near the campus, uh, renovate it into classrooms so it could be used as a institute building. And if it didn't work, you know, they could resell the house and not lose any money. So I had identified a piece of property in a a house that we could use. And uh, it was going to be $250,000. So in any case, um, as it turned out, we only had about 10 active students on the campus. And I was calculating this at $25,000 ahead, And I just wanted to make sure the church wanted to spend that kind of money. And so I... Um, went to the it was actually a new he was an incoming new area coordinator so i scheduled a meeting and went to sit down and talk with him and we were talking about the property in the building and and uh, i said to him uh hey we're getting ready to you know the church is getting ready to purchase this property i just want to make sure that you know this expense is going to be justified mm-hmm. and he got a little angry at me and Uh, started chewing on me and talking about how committed the church was to the youth of the church. Um, That um, there was no expense too great, you know, to build the faith and testimony of our young people. And, you know, particularly in the context of college students and so forth. And uh, that I needed to get my head straight and, and, um, you know, grow the program and so on and so forth. And I said, well, okay, I'm sold. You know, I, Church wants to spend twenty five thousand dollars a student i I get it and suddenly this uh, shocked look came across his face, and he said, What do you mean twenty five thousand dollars a student he, his, he started doing some <laughs> quick math in his head didn 't he <laughs> He said, uh, according to my records you 've got you know fifty active um, you know, college students in your program and i said well i i 've never reported that' I, I don't know where you got that number. And um, so I said, well, he said, how many do you have? And I said, well, you know, we're trying to grow the program, but I, you know, it's about 10 kids that come to each class. He said, 10. And he said, we can't spend that kind of money. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. Yes. No expense is too great unless it's only 10. <laughs> so Uh, And and there's no question the church, uh, you know, spends a truckload of money in in church education. But, you know, there are practical limits. It's just that he didn't have a clear view of what was going on.
2: Sure.
1: So, um, so then he's thinking that there were at least two, if not three other um, properties being purchased or actual bona fide Institute buildings in the plannings to, to be built throughout the Southern States. So he said, well, I I assume these other programs are justified by the numbers. And I said, well, you know, which ones do you want to talk about? So he went through his files and he pulled out these three files on uh, either properties or buildings that were getting ready to be built. And as he thumbed through them, he said, Oh, you know, he kind of did a wipe his forehead and said, uh, Well, yeah, um, um, well, they've got, you know, 80 – I think the standard was 100 active bona fide college students on the campus to get the the building. You know what I'm saying? The Mm -hmm. real institute building. Right. So uh, I got the impression they were going to, you know, 80 to 100 would work. But anyway, he says, oh, yeah, we got 80 here, 90 there, 100 there. Well, I knew that wasn't true because, you know, we all knew each other. We got together. We talked, the CES directors. And and so I, I said, well, let me take a look at the sheets you got, you know, the reports and the attendance sheets.
0: Right, the roles.
1: And the roles. So I looked at them and started going down them, and I said, well, you know, Here's just a few interesting things. I mean, this is the stake presidency, and these are their wives. These are bishops, and these are their wives and their counselors. And <laughs> and it was obvious <laughs> those roles were made up by uh, local people, local board members, local priesthood leaders, uh, trying to get the right number to be able to get the building. And, of course, um, you know, if you're a bishop or a stake president, you've got a college campus in your area, to have a bona fide Institute of Religion building there. Um, builds the kingdom and uh, looks good feels good and and certainly in the minds of many of the brethren um, you know if you have this very nice building it will probably draw people and attract people and it will build the it will build the program and that um You know, this has been talked about in other contexts as far as the huge building program that went on in the 1960s, where a lot of money was spent. I mean, it actually put the church in debt. A lot of money was spent building buildings uh, under the philosophy that uh, if we have a church building in a neighborhood, it will draw a lot of people, and the increased membership will result in increased tithing that will, you know, not only justify the payments to the, of the building, but also uh, overall build the kingdom, period. If, if you build them, they will come. Absolutely. So um, this seemed to be the philosophy that was uh, going on in the, that local area, in the Institute program. But not and, only that,
0: I mean, this is the South. This is the deep South. There aren't a lot of Mormons in the deep South. I think we all understand that. That's correct, right? In that time period, absolutely right. I mean, uh, and so this is, this is cover huge geographical areas. And so is it fair to say this is a feather in the cap of somebody who is claiming to have enough active Latter-day Saints on campus to justify the building of an institute building?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean in terms of prestige among the CES directors in the southern states, if you were chosen to be the director at a building and you had a building, you were considered to be the Um, you know, at the top there, you were the favored ones because you, you had the building. So it sounds like it's a similar kind of thing that you're experiencing
0: from your mission.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we're back to the theme of, of um, lying for the Lord or lying to build the kingdom.
0: Yes. And in a sense, lying to improve your own personal self prestige in the eyes of leaders of the church, because actually, um, I know it's, it's lying to build the kingdom in a sense, but in another sense, a more personal sense, the people who are actually adding the names of the bishop and the state president and their wives and the counselors and all these things to artificially inflate the number of people in attendance at these institute classes to justify the building of the institute building, they know what they're doing. They know that what they're doing is false, but they're doing it so in other words, it's not necessarily to build the kingdom so much, although they might think that in the back of their minds, but not so much as giving a positive impression of themselves to their leaders so that they can receive uh, that positive reinforcement that comes from doing what it is that the leaders want you to do.
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I, I wanted, I mean, these are people that I really liked. Um, I do believe they, had strong testimonies. I believe, do believe they wanted to build the kingdom. Uh, I don't think you can ignore the the kind of the personal ego motivation present. Um, right. I don't know
0: people, so I can afford to be judgmental.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, um, of course, their reactions. What, what, what ultimately happened here was um, this new area director, communicated clearly what was going on to the central office. They did cancel the building and the purchase of those properties and the expenses of those buildings. Uh, It did get out that I was the source of the um, information. And uh, some of these guys who had been friendly to me suddenly weren't real happy with me anymore. They didn't, you know, cut themselves off from me. They just, it was communicated that I was young and stupid and didn't get, how things needed to be done. You know what I'm
0: saying? Right. you're persona non grata now, because you told the truth about the artificial inflation of classroom numbers. Right. And the thing that's interesting here to me, okay, once again, is this distinction between what the church at the higher levels what the church as a whole, right. Wants to do versus what the members at the lower levels are doing because once again, like when Marvin Ashton came out to your mission, right to try and set things straight once uh, some missionaries were writing letters home about how bad things were. Even though he was completely fooled by the mission president and everything that happened there, um, the leadership of the church is very committed to the idea that, no, we really, really mean it when we say we need 80 to 100 active Latter-day Saint students on campus to justify the building of an institute building, which is manifested by the fact that when they found out the real numbers, thanks to you, by the way, that they scrapped the plans correct they did they did so once again here we have people on a lower level understanding what the rules of the game are and then gaming the system in order to try and make the church look stronger than it is to the leaders of the church so that therefore they can get this institute building uh, built or in the case of your mission president Uh, The artificial inflation of numbers with baseball baptisms and soccer baptisms and whatever kind of baptisms you do where you don't even have them come to church, you just just baptize them and then go out to dinner so you can report the numbers. Uh, This idea of looking good to the leaders of the church so that, well, with a mission president especially, I think, so hopefully you can get promoted up the ladder and maybe become a regional representative or an assistant to the 12 at the time, I think, or even hopefully you could get the brass ring and become a member of the 12
1: apostles. Yeah. And, and, um, well, it, it, yeah, it turns out to be a, a troubling thing. And, and, you know, I forget who it was. Um, I think it was maybe, uh, elder Hans Motzen, you know, who was the general authority that was part of the Swedish rescue. and, he, I think it was he that, that indicated that there was a time when the 70s were meeting and uh, President Hinckley was meeting with them and he was questioning the reports that they had submitted to him. President Hinckley was? Yes. Okay. And he said, brother, and he's talking to the 70s, brother, and I have in front of me the records of the church, the actual records. And he said, and in this hand, I have... Uh, your reports, your personal reports on what's going on in your areas. Do, do you remember this report from him? From I, I sort of
0: remember the story, but I don't remember the punchline. Yeah, but I think well, it didn't go over well with President Hinckley.
1: No, he 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 said, uh, "I can only come to one conclusion: what you're sending me isn't accurate." And, and he said, "Look." I I need accurate reports. How can I make good decisions, accurate decisions with respect to the church? If you're not honest to me in your reporting. And, you know, he was in essence saying, look, tell me what's really going on. Right. Right. So sadly, I don't, you know, we we're having to speculate as to why this is being done, but, you know, I assume seventies want to be apostles and, and you want to be seen as productive and successful and, and uh, you know, put yourself in a position to be considered. And you don't want to get conclusion. a visit from the Midnight Zone leaders. That's exactly right. But and honestly,
0: it happens at the very lowest levels. Back when we used to do the home teaching reports, right? We'd have to report to our supervisor, we'd have five families assigned, and we'd have to report at the end of every month how many families we visited. And I think, believe it or not, I think that there may have been some fudging on those numbers from time to time. Um, I I, I, I wouldn't doubt that. Um, well, it's embarrassing to say for the twelfth month in a row you didn't go see anybody. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, um, you know, I'm grateful. Uh, President Hinckley wanted accurate numbers. I'm a little distressed that, and, and I think you're right. This starts low. It starts with uh, maybe there. It certainly started with mission reports when you put missionary young missionaries under a lot of pressure to be successful. Um, they, they learned the lesson very early that uh, an image needs to be created or perpetuated and reporting in a way that does that uh, seems to work. And so if you have, um, you know, whether it's a ward level or certainly in missions, you have missionaries doing it, mission presidents doing it, mission presidents are called to be seventies. And it's just, uh, you know, it's a pattern that, that seems to be in the system. Can I share with you
0: um, another version of what happens on a mission from my mission? Because my mission in Japan, by the way, was not your mission at all. It was a much more straight, up and up, kind of mission, the kind of mission that you would expect for Mormon missionaries to be on. And we didn't do any of these kitty baptisms. We didn't play baseball. We did teach English, but that wasn't really that fruitful anyway. But we're not tricking people at all into being baptized. We're teaching them all six discussions. We're actually having them come to church and then we're baptizing them. So we did not have the numbers that South America did. But we did have a mission president. Uh, my mission presidents were great guys. Uh, I loved them both. I had two different mission presidents during the t- the term of my two-year mission. But they had programs, right? And I remember one program that was given by a mission president, and that was that we would go out there as a mission, and we would have a goal of having 100 baptisms in the mission in this given month. And we would commit to obeying all the mission rules and being up at certain times, studying out the door at a certain time back, you know, the whole nine yards. Right. And we're going to commit to this for this month. And we're going to pray. We're going to have this goal. And God is going to reward our righteousness and our obedience, our strict obedience, even to the mission rules by giving us these baptisms. And I was totally on board. I think everybody in my ward, my ward, my branch was, But all the missionaries were on board with this. And we went out there and we worked hard. We worked diligently. We were very strict in our observance. Of course, I can't say everybody in the mission was. But certainly the missionaries in my branch were. And we kept working and working. And the results were not materializing, Philip. They were not materializing. And as time takes on in the month, you know, uh, it's going to require a bigger and bigger miracle (laughs) to get these baptisms (laughs) before the month is over. And, you know, this month was really, I don't know, maybe there's a couple more baptisms than usual, but we didn't get anywhere near 100. And the thing is this, is that if you've got your, your baptisms being done by giving out soccer balls, you can artificially inflate these numbers. We weren't doing that. But the other side of it is that when you're not doing that and you don't meet the goals that are being set by the mission president with the promise that if you are diligent, that these goals will be met and God will bless you, it's very discouraging. As a missionary, and I'm left to wonder. Well, my mission president, he's a representative of the Lord. This promise is gold. It's not his fault. It's not the Lord's fault. The Lord's ready there to bless us. We didn't get the uh, the the baptisms that were promised, and therefore, the natural conclusion is it's that your failure. We I, we failed somehow, and I couldn't see how we failed, but it must have been us because the baptisms didn't happen. So I just want to give you that other side, that other experience of how depressing it can be and frustrating and demoralizing as a missionary to have these programs in place and then to try and do it the honest way, right? The the Mormon way and to not have the results materialize. Yeah, I agree. So when you were there in the South as an Institute director and as a CES teacher, uh, I'm imagining you had a lot of opportunity to interact with born-again Christians.
1: Well, absolutely. And so what happened is I as I when I took over the program at Auburn, we were teaching our classes up on the what was called the student union up on the campus. And there were other groups up there, other religious groups up there teaching their classes too. So the, you know, the Campus Crusade for Christ and I forget the names of some of the other groups, but they were up there teaching their classes too and they suddenly became aware there's now a Mormon presence on the campus, right? And that was very, very disturbing to them. And in that time, I mean, in that time, uh, a lot of these evangelical Christian groups um, had active anti-Mormon ministries. And many, many anti, you know, the the proliferation proliferation of anti-Mormon books at that time was uh, going on. And so, now they felt the need to minimize this Mormon influence, and I was the face of that. What compounded the problem was my age. I was only twenty-six years old, and I was attending uh, classes at camp, uh, you know, at, at Auburn. So to to some to them, I almost looked more like a student than a you know a professional uh, adult representative of a church. If that makes any sense because they would see me in classes and I looked young because I was young. And I think they began to attack me in a way that they would not if the Institute director had been 40 or 50 years old. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Absolutely. So all of a sudden I, I find myself um, under assault by a variety of evangelical campus Christian groups. I will never forget the night with that uh, in the apartment building where I lived um, and and I was single at the time, which the, the CES didn't realize. They didn't realize they'd hired an unmarried man, which um, disturbed them a bit. But in any case, um, so these uh, these um, Campus Crusade folks, uh, a few of the members befriended me. And, and uh, you know, we would talk and eat and go to dinner. It was very, seemed very uh, innocent. And I was happy to have the friendship and the connection. And we talked very lightly about, uh, religious things and interpretation of biblical verses and so forth. So they invited me one night, they said, Hey, we're going to have a, you know, a Bible study meeting at so-and-so's house. Would you like to come? And I said, Oh yeah, that'd be fabulous. And so anyway, I show up that night and knock on the door. And when I open the door and walk in, um, this wasn't a Bible study group with a couple of young students from the campus. Um, there was a semicircle. Some were young people, but many were adult men, older men, sitting in chairs, all staring at me. There was a seat in the middle of the semicircle for me to sit. And every person beside them had a stack of five or six books piled up. Yeah. And all of a sudden, um, I'm Elder Abinadi. <clears throat> <laughs> and these guys were absolutely and completely prepared i mean you can imagine with eight or ten adult men there with this stack of anti-mormon books each of them had specialized in a subject and they started peppering me with questions and details about the church uh, much of which i was familiar with some i wasn't i mean it, it was um it was an ambush. There's no other way to say it. Yeah. Mormons aren't the only ones who can pull tricks. No. And, um, I did the best I could to answer some of the questions. I knew I was way over my head and unprepared. Now, if I had known that was the rules of the game, I wouldn't have shied away from it. I just would have had time to prepare and have a little more confidence. So, Anyway, I answered the questions that I could. I acknowledged that it was an ambush, that they had been unethical in the invitation. They'd been disingenuous. And uh, that to bring me into a situation like that was certainly not Christ-like. So I bore my testimony, stood up, and walked out. Um, Now realizing that there would be more of that. Now I did take the time to go through the issues that were raised that I didn't feel very confident in. I did research them. I did type up a letter uh, and I did send it out. I did feel the need to respond to those things. Uh, send a letter to uh, the leaders of of that group so they could be spread around. But um, that's what started my need to be able to defend the church and to know the issues and to have good answers prepared. Mm -hmm. So I started consuming everything anti-Mormon and pardon me in that time period, anti-Mormonism was primarily books and then traveling lecturers that would go into their own communities. Right? Right. And this is back in the 1970s. Yeah, this is late seventies. So you've got Walter Martin. Yes, Maze of Mormonism. Um, I forget some of the other very popular books. There were a number of them. They'd be sold in Christian bookstores. I bought every one of them. But rather than than just the printed medium, um, some people got very creative, and they began to do uh, slideshows and uh, videos Um And these video presentations, which in the past were limited to maybe uh, one person traveling from church to church to church, they would do a video, and you could send out hundreds, if not thousands, of churches. And these evangelical churches then could all be watching these anti-Mormon presentations. And it was a massive uh, infusion of anti-Mormon perspectives into evangelical churches, countrywide, if not worldwide.
0: Yes, and the classic example of that was The Godmakers* by Ed Decker in the early 80s.
1: Absolutely, and I attended, he uh, was advertised all, of, when I was at the University, let's see, where was I? I think I was at the University of Georgia at the time as the Institute Director, and I saw it advertised all over campus that, that you know, The God Makers was going to be shown at the Maranatha House, which was a evangelical Christian ministry. I, I attended. I uh, I think it was one of the, Um, initial wave of showings. And so if there was a book, a video, a presentation, I was present. I digested all of these materials. And in my own mind, I, I had to defend on every issue. So I read everything, studied, you know, all the church materials that were available. There really weren't very many. And then I would work with some of the other CES directors, one or two primarily. Most of them didn't care. Most of them weren't interested. Most of them weren't reading. Most of them weren't studying. But the ones that were, I would meet with. And we'd go over these, you know, dozens and dozens of challenges and attacks and issues. And then we would, you know, if there wasn't literature to address them, we would work together to come up with our own perspectives and answers to respond to these things just for our own, you know, just for our own understanding and our in our own ministry to be able to respond to students, uh, institute students who would come across these materials and so forth.
0: Right. So you're studying it. So you can be the person that can help out the Latter-day Saints students who get troubled by this, doubts arise in their hearts, and then they can come to you and you can answer their questions and resolve those issues.
1: Absolutely. And I always did this. I always studied... From the conviction that the more I knew, uh, the more I studied Mormonism, doctrine, history, culture of the Church, that the that the more it would be vindicated and the better it would be, right? Right, absolutely. So now during those
0: nineteen eighties, I was totally involved in Mormon apologetics as well. So we've we've traveled a similar path. I know yours is going to be at a higher level than mine, but I did end up doing a uh, a twelve class institute series. It was an institute class in the spring of 1989. It was kind of the culmination of my decade of work in Mormon apologetics. But I want to ask you this question, okay? Because when I was so immersed in this and finding the answers and even trying to do a little creative stuff myself, coming up with my own answers that I'm not just borrowing from somebody else's material, right? To all these different challenges to the church, like you said, there's there's so many of them. It never crossed my mind at the time to even ask the question and wonder, why is it that there are so many challenges and criticisms of the church? I mean, there are hundreds of them. And just the sheer volume of them, of course, it makes it a very complex subject. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of study to develop the expertise necessary to answer all these hundreds of questions. But it never occurred to me to even wonder,
1: why are there so
0: many criticisms against the LDS church? Did that thought ever occur to you?
1: Well, it, it did. Now, you know, a, a number of their brethren spoke spoke to this and um President Kimball in a conference address in nineteen eighty spoke directly to it and um I mean, I've actually got the quote in front of me here. These numbers, he's talking about growth of the church. These numbers thrill us. They indicate the progress we are making and remind us that what we must achieve in more major ways. We can also tell we are making progress by the attention we get from the adversary. Do not falter nor be distressed when others misrepresent us. Um, this has been the lot of the Lord's people from the beginning. And so the message was the the increase huge increase in attacks of the church was the was um, evidenced that the church was true because Satan was having to work hard and uh, the volume of the attacks indicated the threat to Satan and so the increase in the attacks. And I think that was the overall perspective. Yes,
0: that was when uh, the quote from Brigham Young was bandied about a lot, that uh, Brigham Young had said that whenever uh, God's people build a temple, the bells of hell start to ring. And then he says, I want to hear those bells one more time, brethren. Right.
1: Um, So and, you know, when you're part of a group, I mean, whether it's a family or a tribe or a subculture and. Uh, you know even if you have, are having some difficulties within that group, if that group comes under assault from the outside you you band together uh your your survival seems threatened, and so um, you know the the initial impact is to tie people together, bind people together um for the sake of survival and um yeah, these attacks were so multi-pronged and so voluminous that that uh, I think among Mormons particularly early on you know early on before people really became aware of the validity of a lot of the issues it was a binding had a binding impact right we're Mm -hmm. under attack here let's get let's pull together and so you felt the call I felt the call and and I was becoming increasingly successful in being able to respond now you know, most members of the church don't read a whole lot, and they're not aware of the issues. And and but the way this new material was being presented, and it was being covered in public news media, um, you know, people were having questions. But no, you know, no faithful member is going to read an anti-Mormon book, right? Right. So, but they would become aware of you know single issues here and there, and so. You know, people would begin coming to you needing answers and wanting answers. And in most cases, just the fact that you were obviously aware of the issues, you knew the attack material inside and out, and you could provide two or three um, substantive or adequate responses, that was enough for most people to say, oh gosh, okay, somebody does know, right? Somebody faithful in the church has the answers. I don't need the answers. I don't need to study the material. I just need to know that somebody else knows. Right. So, so now I can press on. And that was my experience with many, many of the people that began to come to me. So did that develop then into
0: your being noticed by higher-ups in the church for your abilities to answer these
1: questions? I think so. I don't know how word got up to uh, CES headquarters. Um, but I, I apparently was one of the few. You, you obviously were doing it in your realm. Um, but somehow word got up to um, the director of the church educational system that there was a CES director that had digested all this anti-Mormon stuff and was successfully addressing it. So I I got a call one day um, from the director of the church educational system. He kind of reviewed what my knowledge and experience level was on the topic. He seemed satisfied that, um, you know, I would be able to make a, contribution. And of course, what was going on is, particularly with the Godmakers coming out and other things, there were, this is kind of what started a, a distress within a certain segment of church membership. And obviously, a substantive number of people were beginning to question and leave the church as a result of those anti-Mormon materials. So, the CES obviously wanted to prepare themselves to be able to respond to that and try to save the the Exodus, you know, try to stem the tide. Yes. So, um, anyway, he, he, um, with me, I, I was at the university of Georgia Institute at the time and with me, uh, working there at the Institute in a different sort of job, um, for the church educational system was, a, a good friend of mine who evolved into being one of the leading church, uh, scholars and authors in the church um i guess they knew we were there together and they assumed the two of us could collaborate and take on this anti-mormon project i know we're going to be talking
0: about this person uh, a little bit so why don't we follow a good established mormon tradition and just give this person a pseudonym we'll give him oh. a fake
1: name uh, how, how about is steve it? Steve's fine. I, Steve. I was gonna I was gonna go with Erastus, but Steve is fine.
0: Oh Erastus.
1: I love Erastus. That's great. Let's go with Erastus. Okay. Erastus it is. Um, so um, the two of us took this on and they gave us six months. Now they assumed we'd have to digest more materials. I had literally digested everything. Um, Erastus himself had read a few of the materials, but not very many, but Uh, He was an extremely bright person and could organize material very, very effectively, which is why he's the author of dozens and dozens and dozens of LDS books. In any case, um, I essentially went through all the materials, um, indicated issues in them, and we began making a list of the different attacks and issues that needed to be addressed. My memory is over the six months, we came up with about 200 specific issues. We then, to make them manageable, put them within, as I remember, 10 categories. And then we just started with number one and went through and uh, provided a response, a perspective on each of these issues that could be used to address them. This is a huge project oh yeah it it took us six months, and um it was fun i yeah I mean it was kind of fun I mean we felt like uh, I felt like uh you know i'd gone into battle and there were these two hundred enemies, and we're going to vanquish, and we're going to defend the kingdom you know mm-hmm. so um I thought it was a successful effort. there were three issues we never could get a good answer to um one was the Adam God teaching, the Adam God doctrine. Um, it, it was a significant issue because it strikes at the uh, the integrity of revelation to prophets and an unbroken prophetic lineage. Uh, because Brigham Young taught something as doctrine for many years, and then succeeding prophets uh, reject it, and then um, well. You know, it, it was rejected, and then it was concealed. And then it uh, was denied. Then it was denied. Uh, Elder Peterson in his book, uh, Adam, Who Is He?, just flat out denied it, that it was ever taught.
0: Right. And in 1976, in General Conference, President Spencer W. Kimball issued what I believe was meant to be understood as a denial that this doctrine, that this teaching had ever been taught by Brigham Young or anybody else in the LDS Church, right? Now I knew better. Um, well, let me ask you. I'm so sorry because I know you're going to conference. I mean, it's 1970s. You're attending general conference. You're a good Mormon, right? Right. Do you remember what you were thinking when you heard President Kimball deny the Adam God theory was ever taught? Um, I do. I
1: I I thought his wording was careful. Oh, was it? Um, I, in my mind, there was a difference between the Adam God theory and the Adam God teaching or doctrine. Uh, I knew there were variations of the teaching. I know from Elder Con- McConkie's uh, attacks on the Adam God doctrine, his concern was the Adam God doctrine was was part of fundamentalist teaching, and and it was linked with polygamy, and the church was. People don't realize this, but behind the scenes, the church has always had an active effort to uh, work against fundamentalist attempts to lure, you know, average Mormons into plural marriage. So uh, I know Elder McConkie was concerned that if people began to accept or believe in the Adam God teaching, it would lead them into polygamy. So they wanted to nip that in the bud. Um, I, I kind of, well, first of all, I grew to believe in the Adam-God teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Brigham Young taught it firmly and clearly. He claimed that he got it from Joseph Smith. It absolutely fits within the Mormon um, uh, theological paradigm. Absolutely. And so it absolutely makes sense that it was true. And when it was part of the temple, I mean, there was a time when it was part of the temple endowment. I mean, what was revealed to you at the veil? Right, the lecture at the veil what was revealed to you was that Adam was your heavenly father. And I mean that there was a revelation at the veil, right? Yes. It was a lecture at the veil. Absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't thanks for coming, come in. And, <laughs> you know, thanks for, you know, come on into this nice room and relax. Um, it, it was a revelation of who your heavenly father was. And so uh, I believed it.
0: Can I ask you a follow up question now? okay? Because I'm kind of similar to you in this as as well, right? But I want to ask you this question. Did you also convince yourself that not only was it true because you knew that President Young had taught it and had claimed it directly as revelation, right? And then you hear President Kimball quote unquote deny it, but he uses his words very carefully. So he's actually not denying that Brigham Young ever said it. He's actually just trying to give that impression without actually saying it. And as you said, he chose his words very carefully in 1976 when he said that. But did you come to the point where you thought, you know, most members of the church don't know this and they don't have the faith to accept it and understand it, but I do, because I'm superior in some way. And on top of that, come to convince yourself that the leaders of the church the first presidency the quorum of the 12 they also are spiritually advanced enough to understand it believe it know that it's true but they give these outward carefully worded denials in order to make it so that the members don't leave the
1: church in droves correct and and i considered it to be one of the mystery teachings right so so you did is- think
0: that you thought that the leaders believe this too
1: yes ah. Ah. At that point, it was, you know, they're spiritually advanced. They know the mysteries. They know the inner secrets. And they they have to protect them as they prepare members of the church to be able to receive them at some point, right? It's the same and, way plural, plural marriage was.
0: And I laughed there because I was exactly the same way, right? And right. so once again, though, we play into this idea that True or not, I, I don't think this part's true, actually, in retrospect at all. I don't think they believe the Adam got theory at all. No. But but the idea being is that the leaders of the church say something different to the members of the church than what the truth actually is in order to keep them in the church so that they can grow to a point where they can understand the deep mystery doctrines.
1: Absolutely. That was my exact point of view they're they're preparing members to be able to receive this
0: and that's how we justify the deception right go ahead I'm sorry I interrupted.
1: no that's absolutely true so so there was no good answer for that right and that was number one Uh, number two was the whole plural marriage business and the way plural marriage was practiced and the deception behind plural marriage
0: oh yeah oh by the way before we leave Adam God yeah Have you thought it interesting that out of all 13 or so essays that the church has hidden on its website dealing with different problematic issues, notably absent from the list is the Adam-God theory?
1: Oh, I never thought of that.
0: Now that you're thinking about it, do you think there might be a reason?
1: Oh, there's no good answer to it. I mean, there's... Well, I guess there... um, um, Paul Dunn gave me an answer to that at one point himself, but um, whether it would be satisfactory, of course I don't think any of the gospel topic essays are satisfactory. I, I haven't met one person, one member who has read those and said to me, wow, that really strengthened my faith. My, enti- <laughs> my entire experience has been, anybody who has read those and digested those has been troubled. Um, and for some it's the final straw for others. It's just a, you know, it's a disturbing and troubling experience. I've never talked to anyone who said it, it reinforced their faith.
0: Yes. The gospel topic essays for me just generally are like when you've got a kid, right? And you, you catch a kid doing something, you know, the kid's up to something that they shouldn't be doing. And maybe it's a six-year-old or a seven-year-old kid, right? And you start questioning them about what it is that they're doing. Now, you know that they did one thing that you caught your hand their hand in the cookie jar, but you think they've probably been stealing cookies pretty regular, right? But yes. you don't, you didn't actually catch them all the time. It's just this one time. And so you start asking them questions about it. And then this little dance starts going on back and forth with the words, right? And what you do as a kid is you come to a point of sophistication usually around six or seven years old, where you start realizing that the parent only knows that you did so much wrong. And what you have to do is you have to admit to the stuff that they know you did wrong, that they can actually prove that you did wrong while still denying the stuff that they don't actually know that you did, right? You only want to confess to as much as they've got you cold on. But, oh, everything, sure. but everything else that you did, no, I'm gonna deny that. That's what the church essays are, I
1: think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I've, I've, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm amazed they're still up because they've, they've had a troubling impact on so many. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Once again, I
0: interrupted you. Please go on. Now you, you end up. Um, okay. So you had' Adam God theory and then you said plural marriage. Now what to you was so unanswerable about plural marriage?
1: It's unjustifiable when presented honestly. Um, when you look at the deception, the lying, the coercion, I mean, young girls being coerced to marry an older man to either um to to secure the eternal salvation of their entire family and in some cases their entire family for generations to come um it's a tremendous amount of uh it's it's, it's a strong, it's an emotional strong arm tactic um for a young girl and so to be either threatened in some ways or coerced But, you know, you're the key to the salvation of your family if you marry so-and-so. I mean, it's just nobody can justify that. Nobody can justify that, period. Um, You know, to to lie and deceive your first wife, um, to make public admission or, or, um, you know. Denials? Denials, I'm sorry. That's okay. Denials of that. uh, It's just not justifiable whatsoever. And then the taking of other men's wives, obviously. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. Those are usually the things that people when they find out about have particular problems
1: with. Right. So it's just, there's no way to put a positive face on that. So I forget the third issue, but those were the two that we just didn't feel we had great answers to. And, and if you sit back, you know, if you're keeping score, right. I mean, out of 200 issues, we successfully answer 197. You feel like you've won, right? Yes. Um, now, there is a problem, and the problem is all issues aren't equal. And if the three issues in question uh, seriously undermine the foundation, then the 100, the other 197 don't matter all that much. Right. But nonetheless, um, um, as a believer, you – feel that somewhere there is a good answer there's something you don't understand right yes there, there is a way if i could sit down with joseph smith there is an okay there is a perspective that'll somehow make it right i mean you you allow that space so to speak and those are you know we're into the shelf discussion you kind of put that on the shelf and and wait for future resolution so Um, the other great thing about it, by the way, is
0: that when you're presenting on it or teaching 12, uh, Institute classes, like I did, that if you've got answers to 197 of the questions, but three that you don't, well, you can spend all your time talking about the answers you have to 197 and never even
1: get around to the other three. Right. And, and psychologically, the other thing that happens is, and, and this happened with us was, um, I felt like I was, I call this the brotherhood of unsavory secrets. Um, We, as we talked about these things, um, although it was disturbing, we still felt that our faith was intact. And we felt that we were just more learned and more mature than other members of the church, that we could know these truths, but still remain firm and still remain faithful and still remain hopeful. Um, Our feeling was the average member couldn't, and because they couldn't and we could, that we were somehow, you know, had greater faith or we were elite in some way. And so there was kind of a psychological balancing that even though some of this stuff was deeply troubling, I'll be honest with you. I I spent hours in my bedroom closet, curled up in a fetal position, crying when I first – came into knowledge of the extent of how plural marriage was practiced, I mean it was so disturbing it it completely overwhelmed me, and it, you know, it took months of carefully working through it to somehow resolve that dissonance and and then put myself in a position where you know, i 'd been challenged, I overcame it, I feel better now I mean I feel stronger now. So as I would meet with other, you know, Institute folks and CES folks, there was this sense that we were part of a brotherhood. Um, We had mature faith and, um, you know, we were going to hold things steady. Um, I used to be a member of the
0: Brotherhood of Unsavory Secrets. Yes. As you put it. And I think this psychology of Mormon apologetics and I'm sure it's beyond Mormon apologetics. It'd probably be apologetics in any kind of field, but the one that I'm familiar with and that you're familiar with the, the brotherhood of unsavory secrets and Mormon apologetics, it also lends itself to this idea not only of being superior because we know the truth we studied and we can handle the truth. But then it also, at least for me, I'll let you comment on here in a second. It also for me gave me permission and justification that when I was presenting it to other people, to do it in such a way as to not mention or spin or whitewash those aspects of it that I found troubling to me and which I knew were going to be troubling to somebody else. So in other words, it gave me license to be somewhat deceptive in the way I presented the information to other people.
1: Yeah, you you would hold back on certain things. And again, if you're successful presenting 197 responses, you hold back the, the three, um, it's a victory. Yeah, absolutely. And people people respond positively. They love you because you have solved a huge crisis or problem for them. Uh, you're loved, you're admired, you're appreciated. That feels good. They want you to be right. Yes. Yep. So, um, and this evolved that way. In other words, um, um, so we sent, we finished our project in six months. We sent our materials in. Um, my memory is we didn't hear back for at least two months or so. And so what in that. Can, interim, can I back you up for just yeah, a second? Oh, I'm oh. sorry.
0: You may have mentioned this. Hope was the whole goal of you're doing this research with this other, um, Erastus was his name. Mm-hmm. Um, was the whole goal was to publish a book of some sort. Well, there a goal.
1: yeah. Um, our goal really at first was to meet the assignment, right? Yeah. And then um, Erastus, who, again, is a great organizer of material. He's a very effective book writer. Um, I think he was already outlining uh, a book. That's my memory.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, what happened was, was word got out. I don't know how that – you know we had this information people are being affected by the materials, so you know we would get we would be invited to do a presentation at a stake level mm-hmm. um, some of the missions or were mission you know headquarters that would contact us and ask us to do a presentation for the missionaries and so you know we started traveling out around our area a little bit and and doing these presentations on our conclusions as to what we had come to, and how to maintain faith and how to approach these issues and attacks as they come up and it was you know it was it was um, gratifying I mean um, many people weren 't aware of the issues, but you know there was some inkling and, and they felt affirmed, and for people who had confronted the materials, they felt redeemed. And uh, and there were always a few who had been seriously, seriously troubled who would approach us privately or um, I think I mentioned to you at one point, I uh, and and even after I left CES and was in the chaplain service, there were these rich, I call them rich Mormons, uh, you know, business people that had a lot of money and that, uh, you know, served in church positions and so forth they would become aware of this stuff. They would be very troubled. They didn't know where to go. And somehow they got my name and they would fly across the, they schedule a day, they would schedule a whole day and they'd fly across the country and we would just sit and I'd whip out my presentation. We would go through it piece by piece. And then, you know, they would have specific issues and I would deal with the specific issues. And then, um, you know, at the end of the day, they would be super, super grateful and fly home. Um, So, You know, I I felt like we were saving the lost sheep. Right. Right. Absolutely. The the ones who were being separated by these uh, attacks. And, um, you know, I was able to bring them back to the fold. So it, it it just felt like a great, great work.
0: Got another question for you. Okay, so when these rich Mormons fly out, spend the day with you or in the context of people asking questions during your presentations, there have got to have been times when somebody brought up an issue, one of those three issues for which you felt you did not have a good answer, whether it's the Adam God theory or the practice of polygamy by Joseph Smith or that third one that you can't remember right now. What did you do when someone asked you a direct question about one of those issues that you in your heart felt you did not have a good answer for Boy, I wish I
1: had clear memory. Interestingly enough, those questions rarely came up in the group presentations. Again, we're back in the early eighties, you know, like 1983. And people aren't reading, you know, Mormons in general are not well read. They're not reading, um, certainly not reading anti-Mormon materials and the questions just didn't come up that much and we would get in the flow of our presentation and it pretty much drove things. Uh, and we would mention, you know, a few issues here and there that were pretty easy to, we, we felt were easy to address. Confidence would be built. Now in private, those questions would come up. And so for example, uh, with some of the rich guys, if the Adam God thing came up and it would come up with these guys, um, I would just share my personal point of view that, look, this is one of the mysteries of the kingdom. The brethren have to be careful. They're preparing, right. Members to receive these mysteries and, you know, mysteries are disturbing. I I don't, you know, I don't accept this anymore, but, um, you know, mystery mysteries, I guess there's some truth, you know, mysteries can be disturbing if you're not prepared to receive it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, Somehow was acceptable and encouraging. It was like, well, yeah, that is true. And guess what? I now know one of the mysteries, right? Yeah.
0: Now they yeah. Now they they become on the inside in this brotherhood.
1: They are. They become auxiliary members,
0: <laughs> honorary members of the brotherhood, but <laughs> <and> savory secrets. <laughs> um. So, um. By the way, by the way, I can understand your answer. <laughs> About the Adam God theory, what about polygamy?
1: Boy, let me think for a minute. You know, for, my memory—and I don't—my memory is that at that point it wasn't common knowledge that um, there was the polyandry, um, that there was quite the level of of deception going on. Uh, gosh, for most members, there wasn't even an awareness that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. You know, it somehow started with Brigham Young. Right. And um, so, it, you know, I think it was fairly easy. I think my approach was, look, um, you know, this is a deep gospel truth. Uh, it's being revealed to a select few to get the practice going. If you remember uh, Michael Quinn's fabulous article on post-manifesto polygamy, he, yeah. talks about, he talks about the pattern of how it was, you know, introduced secretly to an inner core and then began to expand uh, in, in kind of a natural flow and then how it, it exited that way also. And it just made sense to people that, you know, again, a deep mystery, secret truth <clears throat> would be introduced this way. Um, I admitted that it probably wasn't handled well. It could have been handled better. But you didn't go into details if they didn't already know them. Absolutely not.
0: No, of course not. Because there's the same dance going on, right? I was the same way. If I know stuff that's bad and they don't have a good answer for, and the other person doesn't know it and doesn't ask about it, I'm sure as hell not going to bring it up.
1: Right. Right.
0: And in that sense, of course, I'm playing my own part in being a bit deceptive.
1: Right. And that weighs on your soul. That weighs on your soul, even with the rationalization and the ego boost. Um, it's one of those, you know, places of rot within the soul that that uh, at some point can't be overlooked.
0: Well, I, I know it affects some people that way. It affected me that way. It affected you that way. But Erastus, this individual who's a friend of yours, who's written a number of books, uh, is still a member, active, faithful, devoted, prominent, I would say, at least in some circles, members of the LDS church who uh, apparently has not had the same um, experience. He hasn't reacted the same way. His soul has not been weighed down by uh, what it is that he's doing. But by the way, we have to ask the question, does Erastus know, is he even aware of the problems and not having good answers to
1: certain issues the way you are? Absolutely. Absolutely. And And my, you know, I can only, I can speculate here a little bit um, because I had the same kind of experience. Uh, I mean, we talked about how Mormonism um, substitutes for a direct relationship with God. And the flip side of that issue is your sense of self, who you think you are and your personal identity also becomes so enmeshed with the church that or there to be something fatally wrong with the church, it, it literally feels like a threat to your personal well-being. It, it, it almost feels like you would become extinct as a human being, as a person, if there, were, there was something fatally wrong. So you, you cannot admit that. You cannot come to that conclusion. It, it's so existentially threatening. And uh, that was certainly behind what was going on with me, I just have to assume that in the soul of a good person, an honest person, you know, I mean, yeah, honest person, um, except in cases when you need to defend image, um, that it would be a troublesome thing. You know what I mean? Um, Now, maybe that's not true for some, maybe there's, maybe there's such a level of self-deception that, that they're not aware of that, but, um
0: I was just listening to a Frank Sinatra song on the way into work by the way it's called I wish I were in love again it's got a great line in it 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 goes like this the self deception that believes the lie
1: Yeah um and when there's that deep psychological need you just have to you have to cling to that um and you know m- most of these people I I mean I love these people. They're in every other aspect of their lives. They're, they're good people. They're seeking to do good. They're wanting to do good. They're um, trying to be better. They're trying to be Christ-like. Um, there's just this issue that um, church image culture has got to be protected at all costs. And sometimes that cost is the integrity of your own inner being.
0: Yes. And I just want to make this other comment about the nature of truth in the LDS church. I have commented before that truth is defined in the LDS church, not by what is said, but by who says it. Right. In other words, if it comes from a general authority or a person who's up your chain of priesthood authority, right, whether it's your bishop or your state president, that's what makes it true, regardless of what it is that's being said. And then, of course, you get into this game where Uh, If you have conflicting things being said, then you have to figure out, okay, who has the higher position in the church? And then who's the more recent prophet if you've got dueling prophets? But regardless of that, what, what you were saying also made me think of this is that there's another aspect of truth that sort of gets twisted in this. And that is that when you come into this brotherhood of unsavory secrets, or when you identify so much of your personality with the church. And the church must be promoted at all costs and nothing bad said about the church and only the good said about the church that it seems that the truth ends up becoming defined not by what is actually happening or has happened so much as the truth is defined as that which puts the church in a good light. And that which is not true is that which does not put the church in a good light. Sure. You're buying that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Great. Now I want to let you know this. We've got about 40 minutes left in our interview and I know there's a number of uh, stories and incidents and thoughts that you want to share with our audience. I just wanted to give you that, that time frame so that you can focus on those things that you want to talk about in the last 40 minutes
1: we have. Okay. Well, let me move quickly then. Um, the end of that story was, um, um, I finally got a call from this brother who uh, moved from uh, being the Director of the Church educational System to being a member of the seventy and then a member of the presidency of the seventy. Um, he called me one day and and uh, I picked up the phone. Erastus was sitting across from me in front of my desk, and he thanked us for our work, said it was absolutely uh, superior in quality. Uh, he was grateful for all that we had done. And then he paused for a second. He said, uh, now let me guess. I bet you guys are um, becoming very popular. I bet you're going out on speaking engagements and uh, being asked to address this you know, in front of groups and so forth, and you're traveling around, and you're helping people and so forth. And I said, yeah, well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I had no idea he would have been aware of that. And then he said, uh, I, I bet uh, you guys are even thinking about maybe writing a book. And, of course, Erastus, had, I think, had been outlining one. And I said, well, yeah, uh, we are. And and he said, well, we're going to ask you, brethren, to stop. We're going to ask you to take all your notes, put them in a file cabinet and lock it. Uh, we're going to ask you to not do any writing any public speaking, any public presentation on any of these materials. And, you know, inside I'm thinking, holy cow, we have kept hundreds if not thousands of people in the church,
0: right? Yes. And if you continue your ministry by doing these presentations, you'll do that for hundreds and thousands more. And if you write it up in a book like Erastus was thinking of doing, then that'll reach even a wider audience and keep more people yeah. in the so church.
1: That's what I'm thinking inside, but we're yeah. obviously being moved in the opposite direction. Right. So I paused for a minute and I said, well, let me guess. Uh, I said, my guess is that somebody or somebody's up there uh, have determined that simply the raising of the issues the raising of the topic might might that's the operative word pull more people out of the flock than would be brought back into the flock and he said you're absolutely correct so it was a numbers game in other words do we lose more this way or do we lose more of that way and they had determined at least at that point that not bringing the issues up and not responding to the issues, which would bring the issues up, um, would keep more people in than would bring people back. So they just went with numbers. So when I hung up the phone, um, Erasmus looked across the desk and he said to me, so what did he say? And my first response was, well, um, he wants to save the 99 and he doesn't, want us to go after the lost sheep Mm. and that had quite a bit of impact on me that we were willing um i mean who's the lost sheep at this point these are people that are reading thinking uh, searching studying right yeah they care enough
0: about the church to actually study it
1: yeah that's that's who we're allowing to get lost in the wilderness and um so that was, the, that was the conclusion to that. Um, how did that feel, by the way, just personally,
0: because I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and thinking about working on this tirelessly, I would think, for six months to come up with this exhaustive list of 200 issues, and you've put all this together, you've done presentations, you've seen positive things, and on a personal level, how does it feel to have everything that you've done and put together now? Being told to you by the same person, even though obviously he's getting orders from a, an anonymous higher up from himself or something, just to scrap it. How does that feel?
1: Yeah, it, it was a little discouraging at first. Um, and, I, you know, I probably have to admit that part of that was that there was a lot of ego boost in, you know, uh, being desired and admired and sought out for wisdom. Uh, that would all go away um so i'm sure part of that was there um i you know i'm still a true believer at that point i assume the brethren have the bigger point of view that they know what's best for the kingdom um i knew i would probably have opportunities to engage people privately you know what i'm saying where it wouldn't be a public presentation right um so i i I resigned myself to it. Um, But again, it's another one of those little wounds to the soul. And uh, for that reason and other reasons, I um, resigned from CES that next year and took advantage of the opportunity to represent the church as an active duty military chaplain.
0: So this was uh, 1984 that this happened and you went to become a chaplain in 1985?
1: No, this was in 83 and I became a chaplain in 84. Okay. I was one year off.
0: By the way, it does occur to me that there's a common thread with all these different stories that you're telling is that the issue with the church doesn't appear to be so much about telling the truth as it is about numbers, numbers, numbers. The issue was numbers on your mission, pumping those numbers up artificially The issue was numbers when it came to building the institute buildings and pumping up the the numbers of the students so that you could justify the expenditure to build the institute building. And now, once again, we're talking about this book and research and presentations you're giving on Mormon apologetics. And once again, the issue comes down to not telling the truth or being open and transparent or being more open and transparent than the church usually is. But once again, it's about
1: numbers. Had you ever thought of that? Well, yeah, and it, it's obvious that at some point, the church linked its truthfulness to its growth. And so growth has to be maintained at, at virtually any expense. So, um, you know, sometimes John, or early on, John Delenn and I talked about our missions. Again, we debated on who had the worst. And and in his story, you know, he was ultimately sent to another mission, and and. His, his second mission president became a general authority. And and um, if I remember right, John you know, complained about what had been going on and he got a letter from Elder Oaks, Dallin Oaks, explaining that this was not the way they intended missions to act and that um, they weren't pleased with that and, uh, you know, apologized, which is interesting for him, but, <laughs> but that um you know they they that he'd had that kind of experience but um you know the the result was his mission president who had done these unsavory things was promoted to the general church missionary committee and the same beat went on now it's my opinion that the church could stop this in one second you know if elder Oaks came to the podium with a baseball bat and slammed it on the pulpit and said the nonsense in our missions ends today. Any mission president that, that does the following things, right? Baseball, soccer ball, pressure, et cetera, et cetera, will be disciplined, right? It'd be done. It would be over. Now, the fact that that hasn't happened, I can only come to the conclusion that they know that if that were done, the numbers would be reduced dramatically. And if numbers are linked with truthfulness, they just, they just don't have the heart to do something that's going to reduce the numbers.
0: No, they can't quite get there because it occurs to me that this is systemic from the top, because obviously what's going on at the top is that they are getting the reports from the mission presidents about how many baptisms they are having in their mission. And Probably i don 't know if the apostles actually go out and visit the mission presidents in the middle of the night and wake them up and bang them up against the door jam and yeah, say know. what's going on with the uh, so <laughs> they do this. probably a similar kind of thing, right, which is why are your numbers so low? We have goals and you need to meet the goals, and it all goes down from there. I have to think that that's the case, and coupled with the rewarding of successful mission presidents with lots of baptisms by promoting them into general authority positions. It does seem to start at the top and run all the way down. Oh, I agree. Okay. By the way, um, I, you go wherever you want to go now. We've only got half an hour left, but did did you want to talk about your experience at a CES, um, conference, uh, about plural marriage? Not practicing it, but learning about it? <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> uh, um, I'll just mention it briefly. We uh, we were at a church-wide CES conference. It was held at BYU. We were um, in the dorm. This is the late 70s. We were uh, housed in Deseret Towers and uh, student dorms. And uh, Erastus and I were up um, talking about church issues and, and – uh, so forth. It was two in the morning and we had our door open for some ventilation. And uh, Dan Bachman had just done a master's thesis on plural marriage. And in it, he had um, revealed or validated some of the inner workings of it. And we had heard rumors, um, but weren't quite sure what to believe. And anyway, we saw him walking down the hallway to go to the bathroom. And so we looked at each other and just jumped up and ran down there. Apparently, he'd gone into one of the stalls to get some toilet paper to blow his nose. And and so he was in the stall and we blocked him. I mean, we literally physically blocked him <laughs> in the stall and um, started peppering him with questions about uh, his thesis and you know what conclusions he had come to and what he had discovered was true or wasn't true about uh, plural marriage and my memory is is pretty hazy i uh, he was hesitant to confirm some things but he did confirm some things that that he would confirm the things that we either knew about or had suspected if that makes any sense yeah and um but this is again this is part of the brotherhood activities right yes and um We were just desperately, we were just always searching for more and more and more insight and more and more information. And and we certainly wanted the stuff that was um, generally unknown, right? Right, absolutely. By the way, uh, under that line,
0: I'm going back to your outline. You'd mentioned something about 40 years with your scholar friend. I think that's Erastus that you're talking about. Did Did you say Erastus or Erasmus? No, Erastus. Okay, good. I want to make sure we're using the same fake name for your friend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But can you go into that? Because I think you have a very interesting insight at the end of that
1: line. Well, I'm not exaggerating. We've literally spent 40 years dealing with issues, doctrinal, cultural, historical, um, sometimes personal. um, And, and we've always felt successful, you know, I mean, we would just take on one issue after another. And one day we were at lunch and I paused and I thought, you know, for 40 years we have discussed um, hundreds, hundreds of issues, problems. Right. And um, at some point you sit back and you have to say to yourself, you know, is this a matter of, of, you know, a thousand problems or one problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I didn't have to detail it. The, you know, the, the one issue would be if this is essentially not what it claims to be, that's why there are a thousand problems. Right. right. Yeah. So there was kind of a moment of silence after that. We took a couple more bites of food and then moved on to something else. Um, so, yeah, and I've heard others express this. Uh, I've heard Bill Real express this. Um, once that conclusion is arrived at, then all of a sudden, a thousand things that tormented you suddenly make sense and dissolve. Right.
0: And can you put a fine point on that for the audience, just to make sure everybody's following
1: you? Well, if in fact it, it is not what it claims to be, um, historically, in terms of inspired leadership, an inspired teaching and accurate representation of the nature of God and the plan of salvation. Um, if that is not accurate, then um, the many, 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 many disparate issues and problems, it's, it's obvious why there are so many problems. Right. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. And that, you know, When I had that realization that, oops, it's just one issue, literally a thousand issues that had tormented me and that were sitting on a shelf, uh, suddenly just evaporated. Yes. Well, that is why
0: I think the most dangerous thought that any true believing Mormon can have is what if the church is not true?
1: Oh, yeah. And it's so it's so shocking because, again, for most, it's an existential threat. I can't overemphasize that. It is an existential threat. Well, I can't tell
0: you how many years and even decades I avoided even asking the question. I would not permit myself to ask the question. And instead, I spent untold hours and years and Just like you did, studying, researching, coming up with answers, some better, some worse, some really not at all, to this myriad of questions and criticisms and problems with the LDS church, its scriptures, and its history. And I think maybe I was doing that not so much to convince others as I was to convince myself. Probably. And to avoid having to actually grapple
1: with that question, what if it isn't true? Listen, if you're... If your, if your sense of relationship with God and your personal identity and sense of self is tied to the truthfulness of the church, you have to make it right in some way, mm-hmm. or you're destroyed. You're absolutely destroyed.
0: Yes. And I want to make it clear to you and to the audience, this isn't something I was doing consciously. I didn't think that I was trying to prove the church was true to myself, maybe initially, right? But not later on when I'm out there to help others and be the Book of Mormon answer man and help everybody out of their crises and their faith problems. No. But it's only in retrospect that I wonder if I was doing it more or as much to convince myself as I was to convince others.
1: Right. And I I have to believe there was an element of that with me also. Because in my honest, honest, honest moments, uh, it was very painful and very threatening.
0: What did your friend Erastus uh, think when you asked him this question about um, is it really a thousand problems or just, is it just one problem? Did he ever respond in any way to that? No,
1: I'm saying it was silence. It was just silence.
0: Well, you've known this individual for, I think it was 40 years. Yes. You've had a lot of dealings with him, done work with him on the subject of Mormon apologetics. What is your relationship like with him now?
1: um oh gosh uh, i'm not sure um we've always gotten along we've it's, it's just been in the last uh, eight or nine months that there don't seem to be responses to phone calls or messages or texts um well,
0: what happened before that
1: oh we just we were we just if i said go to lunch we went to lunch if you said go to, let's go to lunch we went to lunch
0: i'm sorry that was a bad question what i what i meant to ask was what is it that would have happened to change things?
1: Again, I I can only guess. And my guess is all of this stuff is so personally troubling to him, and I don't know that, um, that it's just too difficult to face and talk about anymore. Is um, it something that you
0: were bringing up regularly?
1: Oh, this is all we talked about. I mean... Oh, we, the problems or the issues with the church? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, and uh, you know you you talk family and movies and different things i mean that's always part of the conversation but they they always centered around you know a recent talk or a recent incident or a recent episode or a recent scandal or a recent doctrine or teaching and so forth i mean those were the heart of the conversation and and uh so um yeah i I think it's just going to be too painful and 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 at this point, many of his past <clears throat> friends have left the church for one reason or another. And it, it's just uh, very you know, painful and disturbing to have friends peel off. I've, I've lost four, at least four, not counting this because I'm not completely sure, but I've lost four of my lifelong friends uh, because they're afraid of me now. Really? Is, is Erasmus one of them? I don't know. He's still a question mark. Right. Okay. But certainly certainly, I have four others that won't interact with me anymore.
0: Why do you think, that, well, I think you've already said why it is. Because once you become someone who um, is not invested in the truth claims of the LDS church, then you become an existential, excuse me, easy for you to say, an existential <laughs> threat to them. Sure. Yeah. I know because I myself have found that I've become radioactive, apparently to many of my former friends in the church.
1: And it's sad because these are people I just have adored and appreciated through my whole life. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that uh, there's
0: now 19 minutes left. I know that you've come to a newer understanding and a new practice. Um, But I would like, if you could, you can finish this any way you want, but I'll just give this as as a suggestion. Um, You had written an article in, the Sunstone, you've written several, but the one I'm thinking of, you sent me a copy of, it's called, Hindering the Saints, Correct. Taking Away the Key of Knowledge, and I was wondering if you could maybe express some thoughts um, about the deficiencies that you see in the leadership of the LDS Church, as far as an organization to bring people to Christ and closer to God.
1: Right. Um well, you did. I don't know actually, if I remember right. Three episodes on on Phariseism. There's so much to say. Oh yeah, and and of course the the heart of that is um, people's sense of spiritual understanding and valid, uh, understanding being validated by external activities and practices. And the problem with that is they're not transformative. I mean, Jesus just didn't come to teach true doctrine and to organize a true church and to have Sunday school. I mean, you know, when Nicodemus, who represents the external practice of religion, comes to him, uh, and I assume he came with the intent of, of, exter- of, of sharing the external path of salvation, Jesus nips it completely in the bud, right? And, and says, unless you are born again, it could also be translated born from above, right? Which implies a a direct rebirth in God from above, uh, meaning a a restoration of your divine nature and your, your, the realization, which means knowledge of experience of your true nature in God. So the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't about um, strictly morality. It's not strictly about believing true doctrines, right? Um, It's about living right, but it's also about um, the inner path. It's about the kingdom within. It's about realizing the true nature, character, and presence of God, and in that light being awakened into your own divine nature. That's what this is about. That's rebirth. Um, and, And it's not only not understood and not taught, it's not practiced in the church. And so as a result of that, very few Latter-day Saints experience um, what Jesus came to do, which was to mediate the inner rebirth. Um, so I already lost track of your question here. Well,
0: um, oh, that's okay, because I was you're, you're answering it. I would go further and say that I think that the church's structure is such that for you and for me as well, being young people, kind of unstructured, not sure what I'm going to do, it was a great blessing to me to help me as well as it helped you to learn how to structure, organize, how to work hard, to have goals, to feel a meaningful um, association with something bigger than myself, something uh, exciting, and this idea of, personal revelation with God. But by the time I was within really 10 years of being a member of the church, I was already in retrospect, I can see this was happening. I was already sort of growing big enough to where I was. Well, if Mormonism is a box and believe me, it's a box. Okay. However big you think it is, it's a box and you're put in it and you can grow a certain amount, but beyond that you can't grow anymore. And so then it starts feeling constricting and yet you're told you have to stay in the box. You have to stay in the box and actually being righteous and being good with God, Philip, that means staying in the box. Yes. Or staying in the boat. Same idea. You stay in that effing boat and that's what God wants you to do. You never leave the boat. Okay. And so, there's this constriction that goes on and it had happened to me within 10 years of joining the church. Of course I'm still in there active for another 30 years for crying out loud because I am believing that that's what righteousness is, is doing the checklist every month, doing the home teaching, doing the, the going to the temple. Uh, you know, the drill, reading the scriptures, going to church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, fulfilling your calling. And, but that was what I thought it was. And yet I'm dying. I am dying because There is no growth. There is no uh, life for me in that. There's just this mindless, endless repetition. And I'm being told that that's growing and becoming perfect. But my lived experience is telling me the opposite.
1: Right. So in honest moments now, you know, I have to emphasize this. I My whole life has been been spent being a professional Mormon, right? Whether it's a CES director or a military chaplain, my work, my work is religion. My work is spirituality. I I, I do it all day, every day, right? Mm -hmm. So if the gospel as taught is going to work for somebody, it should have worked for me. Yes. Now, Mormonism completely blessed me, as I've mentioned, and it's because there are different aspects of the spiritual path. You can't expect to have an internal rebirth if you're living an immoral, irresponsible, immature lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. You can't be dishonest and immoral and and uh, lost in fear and desire and desires and think there's going to be an inner rebirth. There has to be some level of stability in your personal life, which – which is the initial part of the spiritual path, you know, learning to be um, um, thoughtful, kind, organized, obedient to to true principles, to ethical principles, and so forth. I mean, that you don't have to be perfect, but it's you can't be perfect because the natural man is incapable of being perfect. And so, but you have to have enough moral, mature, responsible behavior where there's not a tremendous amount of restlessness in your mind and heart what keeps us lost in an inferior and false sense of self is restlessness in mind and heart. And so what we typically call sinful behavior, right? Or evil behavior creates barriers in relationships, a barrier in understanding God, and it creates an internal mental and, and, um, heart level restlessness. Now, You know, Jesus stood on the stormy seas. The stormy seas represent that mental and emotional restlessness. He didn't tell Peter to stay in the boat. Get out of the boat, right? Right. The boat just gets tossed and turned by these waves. No, you got to get out of the boat up above this restlessness with Christ, in Christ, above the storm. Do you see? Get out of the boat. And So there needs to be that foundation, and Mormons are experts at that. I mean, that's what we specialize in, right? The moral, responsible, mature behavior, by and large. It's vital, and that transformed my life as a young person. The problem is it only works on the external life. It doesn't cause for an inner rebirth, awakening to the true nature and presence of God, and an awakening to your own divine nature. It doesn't do that. There's no amount of external commandments and kind behaviors that you can do that's going to generate the grace necessary for that inner rebirth, period. So, you know, that's why I say, you know, in that article, I quote those two verses, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut up the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus in Luke 17 says is within you, right? Right. It's the divine nature within you. We make it into some sort of external organization that's going to come and take over. Um, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering, right? Mm-hmm. You have hit, you know, he, he, in another verse in Luke, he says, you've taken away the key of knowledge. What's the key of knowledge? The key of knowledge is the personal realization of the presence, true nature of God and your divine nature. You've taken that away. You hinder those that are coming to that knowledge, you see, who are entering that kingdom. Well, what's the hindering? And these weren't all bad people. These weren't evil people trying to do evil things. These were people lost in a worthiness culture, a purity culture, and where they're trying to justify themselves by external religious practices. I mean, what does the typical Mormon do if there's a crisis in their lives? They pray more, fast more, go to the temple more, read more, right? It's like... If I do more of this external stuff, it's, it's, it's going to make God pleased with me and he's going to bless me. That, that was never the teaching of Jesus, right?
0: Right. Philip, can I just, I'm sorry. I know you're on a roll here. I just want to say this thing that just struck me is that the attraction and the allure of this idea of an outward religion of the ordinances, the praying, the visit teaching, all that stuff is that it can be measured
1: once again we're
0: back to the numbers yes we can keep track of it and we can keep the numbers down of what we've done in order to be righteous so that we can know if we're being righteous so that once again um, we're back to being bound in by numbers as opposed to being uh, liberated by the truth
1: yeah Listen, I'm telling you from absolute dead bang personal experience, most Latter-day Saints are spiritually starved. Some are aware of it, some aren't, but they are spiritually starved. And we're in an age where many, many Latter-day Saints secretly are peeking their heads up out of the box and they're looking around for something, something that can give them spiritual life. I mean, in our in our age in our time frame in the church mormon spirituality has really been uh, i mean what has defined mormon spirituality has been folklore concocted or exaggerated miracle stories emotionalism and sensationalism that's what gave life to mormon spirituality but it's played out it doesn't work anymore much of it's been exposed as being untrue i mean You know, I knew Paul Dunn. The reason Paul Dunn and Hartman Rector were sent around the church was because they were charismatic. They did share this folklore and these exaggerated miracle stories and emotionalism and sensationalism. And it's just played out. It doesn't work anymore. And as a result, um, I I, I can tell you, my friend Erastus, there was a time period, and he and I had the same experience. Uh, A number of brethren came to him, bishops, um, state presidents, Uh, Reportedly, members of the seventy, and they would say, and and I've had several of them say to me, I've had people who've had their second anointing come to me, and say, look, I've done everything, I've achieved everything, I've sacrificed, I've given out of a full heart, a pure heart, and the question is this: Is this it? Implied in the question is, I've done all these things. I expected I would be changed inside. I expected I would be a new creature in Christ. I expected I would be Christ-like, but Honestly, I'm still egocentric, selfish, impatient, right? And they realize, and so if, if this rebirth isn't happening in this life, the only conclusion you can come to is it isn't intended for this life because I'm in the true church doing the right things. This must be a blessing for the next life, and it gets pushed off into the future, right? Like everything else. So for me, no, Jesus didn't come to teach a future salvation, Jesus, and you see it in the language in the Gospel of John, Jesus came to give us eternal life, to mediate eternal life today. Today. Uh, Not something off in the future. So uh, this is what happened to me. You know, toward the end of my military career, I'm working with a ton of Latter-day Saint couples in marriage counseling. I'm suddenly realizing the gospel isn't working in their lives. There's no inner transformation. Their marriages are failing because they can't act in a mature, responsible, Christ-like way. And I went home and I was complaining to my wife and um, you know, about how all these other people, right. The gospel wasn't working for them. And you know, her response was, have you tried looking in the mirror? Right. (laughs) And she was absolutely right. In 30 years of professional gospel living, I was still sarcastic, impatient. Um, I, 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 had a hard time being emotionally vulnerable, loving fully and completely without fear. I mean, all the things you would want to be completely Christ-like, I had not realized. And then I suddenly realized, gee, it it didn't work for me, you know? Now, it took my accident and being thrust into chronic pain to to be guided to use meditation primarily as a source of, of pain relief, chronic pain relief and stress reduction, it suddenly unveiled itself to be the core of the spiritual path of the inner path and the realization of divine nature and the, the message and mediation of Christ that transformed me. Um, So it wasn't a collection of disturbing things about history or doctrine in the church. I had already become an expert, not only in the external path, which didn't work, but I became an expert in defending the church against any issue that would come up no matter how vile what what changed me was uh, an awakening into the true nature of god which in that light i suddenly realized what was true and what wasn't true it established my divine nature and life and personal identity in him the true god suddenly there was no longer the psychological and emotional need for mormonism to be right And it sounds to me like what
0: precipitated that, I'm just saying what you said actually, is that you suddenly came to the realization, uh, maybe thanks to your wife, is that not only was Mormonism not working for all these people that you were trying to counsel in their own personal lives, as opposed to settled doctrinal issues, right? But in their personal lives, but then all of a sudden you realized it wasn't working in your life
1: either. No, not at all. Not at all. And I'm the professional. Right. So. Uh, I got thrust into this crisis, this dark night. Um, um, nothing. And I went straight to Mormonism, pray more, fast more, get blessings. I got blessed by bishops, take president, general authority. I got worse with every blessing. Everything that I believed would sustain me spiritually suddenly did not work at all. I turned to meditation. I have an inner awakening. I start to realize the true nature of God in Christ. My life is transformed. My understanding of spirituality is transformed. And then suddenly, and it was my, my wife that recognized this after three years of meditation. Oops, who are you? Where did this patience come from? Where did this ability to love come from? Do you see? Mm-hmm. It wasn't something I made happen. It was something that just unfolded as I abided in the presence of God. Do you see, that was the, what, what caused the inner transformation. So that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years, trying to share that, teach that, and so forth. Um, And many Latter-day Saints are open to it because they are um, starving for genuine spiritual life, and they are willing to to look outside of the box.
0: In the last couple of minutes that we have, do you want to... Uh, Tell our audience, anybody who wants to find out more about your practices and how to pursue those and find out more about them themselves, some resources they could go to?
1: Oh, gosh, I wish I'd have prepared for that. Um, A lot of Latter-day Saints are um, reading books by, let's say, Richard Rohr. There's a whole host of Christian spiritual teachers. Um, There's a whole... Um, practice called centering prayer contemplative prayer, where you can combine the Christian reading of scriptures contemplation of scriptures um, Christian meditation that was practiced in the early early Christian church that got lost when things began began to become externalized um, but you can read books by Con- thomas keating or or richard Rohrer. Um i came into this Christian this understanding of the inner life of Christ through the yoga tradition um, and I was trained in meditation by Deepak Chopra and the last living direct guru disciple of the very famous Yogananda. Uh, he was my personal teacher for the last thirteen years of his life and so it was through the yoga tradition that I came to the realization of the true nature of Jesus, his atonement his mediation. I detail that somewhat in my article, the yoga of Christ. So if you read my four sunstone articles, Mormon mantras, the yoga of Christ, Henry and the saints and becoming the beloved, then you'll have my basic perspective, uh, philosophy and practice. Um, uh, if if people want to email me at Abba Om, A B B A O M at yahoo.com. I'm, I'm just always happy to engage folks uh, individually. Okay, really good. Really good. Thank you
0: so much. I've had such a great time talking with you today, Philip Mackmore.
1: Oh, I, I um, admire your work. I'm grateful to be with you, and I hope things we have discussed are, are helpful. Oh, I think they're going to be very, very interesting at a minimum
0: and hopefully helpful. Okay. All right, well, I think we're going to close with that song that uh, you made me think of, the Frank Sinatra song, I Wish I Were In Love Again. It's a great song. It's got great lyrics, and embedded in those lyrics, if you listen carefully enough, you will hear that signature line that I mentioned earlier, the self-deception that believes the lie. Thank you again, Philip McLemore. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. The
2: sleepless nights, the daily fight, The quick toboggan when you reach the heights I miss the kisses and I miss the bites I wish I were in love again The broken dates, the endless waits The lovely loving and the hateful hates The conversation with the flying plates I wish I were in love again No more pain No more strain Now I'm sane But I would rather be punch drunk The pulled out fur of cat and cur The fine mismating of a him and her I've learned my lesson But I wish I were in love again furtive sigh, the blackened eye, the words I love you till the day I die, the self-deception that believes the lie, I wish I were in love again. When love congeals, it soon reveals the faint aroma of performing seals, the double crossing of a pair of heels. I wish I were in love again No, no more care No, no despair Now I'm all there now But I'd rather be punched drunk Believe me, sir, I much prefer A classic battle of a him and her I don't like quiet And I wish I were in love again In love